Welcome back to D&J's Epic Quest. I am Jay Rule, a.k.a. Justin, and alongside me here is... Derek Rodas! Or Derek. Uh, sorry, I'm just really excited to talk about Malazan again. Uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's only been a little <laughs> over a month now, right? Like, Yeah. We could totally get back into it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and it's, uh, it is Sunday, December 10th today, so... I, I mean, I guess I don't know how... We'll see what things are like with the holidays and stuff. Um, there might be another mini gap in here. I don't know. Uh, but we'll figure it out. We'll navigate it. We always do. Uh, but slowly and surely, we will make our way through things. But it is good to be back. Second time we've recorded here since I've been back from vacation. It was fun talking with AHC last week or however many days ago it was. But excited to get back to our bread and butter of things here also. Oh, yeah, for sure. And the good thing is, is knowing what's coming up ahead is that once the holidays are done, it's nothing but like the home stretch. You know, we should be able to record consistently without too many interruptions. I know that in April, I'll have to go to Reno, uh, but that that would only be for like three days. Uh, the biggest little city in the world. Right. Yep. exactly. Yeah, it, it'll be nice to get back into it. Um, definitely excited to talk about this chapter because some, some, definitely some shit happens. So, yeah, just, uh, you know, I know you've read this chapter multiple times. I tried, uh, it didn't exactly happen that way, but I think we've got some pretty good summaries here and, um, I, I think we'll definitely have some good stuff to talk about. So yeah, absolutely looking forward to this and excited to be back and, um, yeah, we'll see how long this takes. <laughs> so it's going to be, a, it'll be another long one, I think, but, uh, yeah, that's all right. Yeah, I don't think that it'll break any of our, our already standing records of just under five hours um, as far as like edited version goes. But yes, I definitely think that it'll probably, if I had to anticipate, maybe a three and a half hour episode. So That's all right. I'm here, I'm here for it, man. Exactly. That's what we're here. That's what we're here to do. We're here to talk about the nitty gritty and go through a fine tooth comb even though we still miss shit but eh. <laughs> hey, we're not gonna catch everything so. no 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 definitely uh, yeah how you how you been since we talked last year since we recorded last it's been a busy week lots of uh things going on this week so just been running all over doing kids stuff taking kids here concerts cheerleading competition was yesterday so 
Yeah. It, it'll it be nice. Well? To, huh? Did it go well? I, I think so. Uh, they, they got fifth out of fifth place, but there are definitely some better groups as far as the judges were concerned, but I don't really care about that as long as, you know, my daughter, she's did, having fun. Yes. She's having fun and she's doing her best. That's all I care. That's about. all you can ask. What about you, man? How you been? Uh, it's, it's been kind of a roller coaster, um, over the last week here. Uh, the end of last month, I had a, a friend, a guy that's our age, he passed away just suddenly and unexpectedly and, um, had his funeral last Thursday. So it was, I've never, I don't think I've ever gone to a funeral for somebody my age before. Um, but it was one of the most terrible things I've ever had to experience is, you know, he was, he would have been 37 next month. Um, Jeez. Dang. Four, four kids and his poor wife, um, just, just a mess. Um, so it was really hard. And I know we'd kind of talked about recording that day because I took the day off and um, I don't think I would have been able to do it. So a few days later here, it's still, it's hard to believe because it's uh, like, I mean, you know, mid thirties, uh, he wasn't in terrible shape. He was still playing men's league hockey in a league above me, you know, faster pace. So he's in good shape. Just went home and went to bed and that was it. Just lights went out. Um I haven't heard of any cause, you know, I don't know if they did. I assume that they must've done an autopsy, but to find out what happened, but it's just terrible. But our hockey community has really rallied around his whole family and given him a lot of support, but it's, it's still a hard thing just to try to wrap my head around. And, you know, some people say like, Oh, well, you know, at least he went in his sleep. And to me, that's, I thought about that a lot and I don't really feel like it's any consolation because it really just kind of terrifies me to think like, well, he closed his eyes and he never opened them again. He never got to see, you know, the sun last one last time, his kids one last time, you know, whatever. And I don't know that that's the way I want to go. Well, um, no, definitely not. Because like, for me, myself, I think about everything before I go to bed and all the things that I want to do and all the things that I have yet to accomplish. And probably the reason why I don't get very much sleep, but at the end of the day, you know, to not, to just be gone after worrying before you go to sleep would just suck yeah i mean it was really hard because uh, i mean the, the of the four kids the two older ones were not biologically his they were his stepkids but they all wrote letters and the pastor read them and he struggled to get through them but then both the older two said that they were more of a father to him than their biological father and the youngest she <laughs> i'm getting emotional about it now she said i just want my dad to come home make noodles and dress me up like a mermaid. I mean, just one of the saddest things I've ever yeah. seen. So I, th I think about him a lot. I had hockey this morning. He's not at the rink anymore. He's worked there since our senior year of high school. That was like his first job as far as I know. And that was his only job. And uh, he's, he's not there anymore. So it's, it's tough to think about him not being there. So, uh, you know, it really puts things into perspective. Um, you know, I'm going to have fun. I'm you know doing this because yeah we just we don't know when our time's up so I've just you know I don't really give a shit if I look like an idiot <laughs> um, if I sound stupid if I'm singing in an episode because you know people it's kind of the old adage tomorrow's not guaranteed so you know that's just gonna be it it's I'm gonna have fun do what I can with the time that I've got sorry for my little soapbox wagon there. No, that was a great uh, D and J's first epic epigraph. Yeah, I like it. That was good. Yeah. Sorry for your loss, man. That sucks. It's never easy. I mean, 
just reminds us how fragile we really are. It does. And uh, I I guess I can't remember off the top of my head, but there, I, I feel like there's a couple parts in this chapter that really made me think about, uh, made me think about uh, Casey, you know, and his passing and this book even. So, yeah, I'm sure once we get there, it'll ring a bell. That's fair. Well, to turn it away, um, Silverstone's books, uh, are they, they live on site now? Yeah, they've been uh, open. Their storefront's been open, I think, for like about a month. Uh, but they right. just had their grand opening yesterday. Uh, the city was there to cut the ribbon and stuff. So I don't know if uh, Kevin got any videos of that or anything. But yeah, they officially, the grand opening was yesterday, December 9th. Hell yeah. Well, if you want to go visit uh, Silverstone's books, you definitely can because now they have a physical location. However, if you can't go see them, do know that uh, Silverstone's Books has a website, silverstonebooks.com. Large selection of fantasy, sci-fi, horror, uh, with many of them being signed copies at pretty decent prices. So they have been generous enough to give us a, a checkout code, DJ Quest, for 10% off any purchase from their website. I don't know if it'll work in store. I mean, you might have to ask, but yeah, check it out. Definitely. Uh, and I, I know you and I kind of have a goal of going there sometime here after the new year. So we'll have to work that out. That'll be a lot of fun. Yeah. I not a fan of driving really anywhere during the winter, but I mean, if we can plan a, I don't know, like a weekend where we go down there, check it out and come back during a time when it's not supposed to snow anywhere. I'm good. We can go. Oh, well, you make it done to my place. I can drive it. Don't bother me driving in the snow. Fucking hate driving in the snow. I love it. All right. Well, then, yeah, I will definitely come down and you could drive. <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds good. All right. Well, uh, our patrons, it's been a while since we've got to shout them out here, I think. Well, I guess it's been like a week. But we've got Jan, the picker of pies, Luciana Etrigan, Ryan, the topological, Damien, the rock of faces, Nate, fiddle me this, Shield Anvil Dylan. Thank you, guys. Uh, your support means everything to us. Uh, can't thank you enough. Speaking of our patrons, sometime here in, in the next couple chapters, I know we've mentioned it before, but Nate has his own podcast, uh, the podcast of The Fallen, which he does with one of his friends, uh, who is like us and not read the series yet. And they are on the verge of overtaking our progress, um, if they haven't already. But we've we've talked to them. I, I was able to go on their show. I, you were busy. I don't remember what you had going on, but you weren't able to make it. But um, we're going to return the favor sometime here in the next couple chapters. I think tentatively chapter either nine or ten. So I don't know if we'll get to that before the new year or not, um, or if that'll be sometime shortly after the new year. So keep an eye out for that. We'll have Nate and Matt on our show here before too long. Hell yeah. I'd also love to give a uh, shout out to YouTube comment, Daniel Gwynn. Uh, thank you so much for that perspective. I'm looking up what it is that you said. <laughs> well, while you're looking that up, uh, I'll shout out Damien here as well for <laughs> letting us know that apparently we missed something fairly important in our uh, last Malazan episode. Not sure what it was, and he's not giving us any hints. He's just hoping maybe we somehow circle back to it, which I don't really know how we'll do if we don't know what it was, but uh, I like, uh, uh, I appreciate all his comments um, on the videos. So uh, those are a lot of fun to read. Thank you. 
thank you, Daniel Gwynn, for kind of doing some math for it. And uh, when he was commenting on our, our longest episode ever, chapter five there, he was saying um, that at the current rate, it will take about 700 hours worth of content just to finish the main 10. And he was saying that even now at about 123 hours, this podcast, our podcast, he has listened to the most and is among the top 10 most watched YouTube channels for him, which he said was pretty wild. And I thought that was absolutely wild as well. Just the thought of being on, you know, within someone's top 10 YouTube videos is just mind blowing and really something that I hadn't expected at all when I started doing this. So it's really cool to learn that. So thank you, Daniel Gwynn, for your uh, membership, as well as the wonderful insight that you provide via notes or comments. Yeah, thank you very much. And and also thank you to everybody else that checks out our YouTube videos, um, comments and all that good stuff. Exactly. Yes. Okay. Onwards, onwards and outwards. Let's get this sub books done. <laughs> you want to do, right. you want to do, do the sub book epigraph and you can take the chapter one and then we'll roll into my section that work. Sounds good. All right. Uh, this one I, I really liked. Just, it, uh, I don't know, just struck a chord. But midnight comes often in the dusk of my life. When I look back upon all that I've survived, the deaths of so many for whom I cared and loved in my heart have expunged all senses of glory from my thoughts. To have escaped those random fates has lost all triumph. I know you've seen me, friend, line face and silent regard, the cold cal petitions that last years clothed in darkness as all our old men haunted my memories the road before you joram of capistan i kind of wonder if that's uh you know maybe somebody who survived capistan the siege that uh, i believe will be upcoming here but before too long and just kind of his experience looking back for sure yeah i would say so as well I would imagine it, it kind of sounds like uh, what you said, just a, an afterthought, a reflection of the, the siege that we have yet to read. Chapter 7 epigraph here. And all who would walk the fields when the boar of summer strides in drumbeat hooves and the iron forest converges to its fated inevitable clash. All are as children, as children once more. Fenner's Revy, Distraint Dellum. I don't have a lot of insight as to what that might mean. Well, we'll talk about it, but I picked up on something about Fenner in this chapter. Well, a few things, actually, but we'll we'll get there. All right. Well, we'll get things started here. I, I, <laughs> I had a handful of some pretty long sections here, so uh, popcorn at the ready, folks. The wind blew across the killing field along the dark sea over East Watch, where there was a faint light from the fortress's closed shutters. It kept blowing until it reached Capistan's streets where nothing moved. From a corner tower stood Carnatus, facing the storm alone, his boar-maned cloak tossed back and forth in the wind. Looking out about 500 paces to the north along the wall, his attention was directed. The palace of Prince Jalarkin was unlike any other building in the city. It had no windows and just generally looked like chaos with odd angles, overhangs, and seemingly pointless ledges. In his mind, he saw boulders being launched from beyond the killing field to just destroying the building. Carnatus thought to himself, unworthy of you. 
Where resides the comfort of knowledge of history's vast, cyclical sweep, the ebb and flow of war and peace? Peace is the time waiting for war, a time of preparation, or a time of willful, willful ignorance, blind, blinkered, and prattling behind secure walls. Within the city's walls, the mortal sword Brucalian was struck, stuck in a meeting with the prince and half a dozen representatives of the mass council. The Grey Sword's commander forbid such a tangled marathon with what Carnatus could only explain as superhuman patience. Carnatus thought he would not have been able to suffer all these meetings day after day, week after week, but that it was remarkable uh, what could be accomplished even while there were debates actively taking place. He wondered how many of the mortal swords and prince's proposals had already been implemented. He thought they had done what could be done to save the city. In his mind's eye, he saw the fur-painted and articulated mask of one of the priests on the council, someone who should have been an ally. Rathfenner spoke for the Boar of Summer, who was the Greysword's patron god. He thought that the political ambition consumed him, yet he still knelt before the bloody tusk. So was it a lie? The only answer Carnatus was able to hear was the wind howling. Lightning lit up the sky over the bay. Rathfenner was a priest of the sceptered rank, the pinnacle of what a mortal could achieve within Fenner's sanctified walls. He thought that Fenner was not a civilized god, though. Though he thought he should not hammer him with questions on his faith, he served their shared god in his own way. Fenner was the voice of war, and as ancient as humanity itself. His was the sound of battle. Again, thinking to himself, Carnatus thought that they would need, they would all need to be forgiven as the voice of war grows to a roar, and it was not the time to hide behind temple walls, nor the time for petty politics. They served Fenner by bearing their weapons. They were the bellows of rage and pain. Rath Fenner was not the only priest who was of the sceptered rank. The difference was that while Rath Fenner had possessed the ambition to kneel before the boar cloak and assume the ancient title of Destriant, vacant for so long, Carnatus had already achieved it. Carnatus would be able to put Rathfenner in his place simply by revealing who he was, his position in the hierarchy. If he wanted, he could dismiss him with a simple gesture. But Brucalian had forbid him from doing so and would not be swayed on his position. He only told Carnatus that his time would come. For now, patience was best. Ecovian asked the Destriant if it was a welcome night. Carnatus replied that he did not see him in the dark and gloom and asked how long he had stood there. He could not see Ecovian's expression in the dark, but he was told that it had been only moments. Carnatus asked if sleep had been eluding him. Ecovian only replied that sleep came to him when he wanted it. Carnatus said he had lost track of time and didn't realize it was so close to dawn, and if Ecovian had expected to be gone for long. Ecovian shrugged and said he didn't think so, assuming that they crossed in strength and, and that he was only allowed to lead two wings of troops. And if they find scouting parties, then the first blows against the Doman would be made. The Destriant only replied, at last. Then they stood in silence for a time, before he asked the shield anvil what brought him up. Ecovian told him the mortal sword had returned and wished to speak with him. Carnatus asked if he had been waiting patiently while they chatted, and Ecovian told him he had imagined so. They turned to the tower stairs and made their made their way down, three flights down as it was cold enough to see their breath. Until the arrival of their soldiers, the barracks had been empty for nearly a hundred years, and the chill in the air had no desire to leave. 
Among all the major structures in the city, it predated the Daru Keep, which had been renamed the Thrall, and the House of the Mask Council, and every other building except for Prince Jalarkin's palace, which, Carnatus would bet, was not built by human hands. As they reached the ground floor, Itkovian opened the doors that led to the round hall, where in the nearly bare cham chamber, mortal sword Brucalian waited with his back turned to the entrance. Without turning to face them, he said that Wrath Trake believes there are demons on the plains west of the city. Carnatus took off his cloak and said he didn't understand the tiger's sudden claim to true godhood, that a cult of the first hero had succeeded in, get in getting its way into the Council of Temples. He was cut off, and Brucalian said it was an unworthy rivalry. The season of summer was home to more than one voice of war, or would he now challenge the spirits of the Bargast and Rivi as well? Carnata said, first heroes are not gods. They were not even tribal spirits. He asked if any other priests had supported Wrath Trake's claims. He was told no and tried to speak, but Brucalian cut him off, saying they were not convinced that the Panion was going to siege Capistan. He then asked Ekovian if his wings were unfurled. He said they were. Brucalian said it would be unwise to discard such warnings during a patrol. Ekovian told him he discards nothing and they would be vigilant. Brucalian said he knew he always was and that they may leave. Brucalian turned his attention to Carnatus and asked if he was sure of this invitation he had received. He said he was not, as he could not figure out who sent it, or if they had the same stance. He asked if he had replied, which Carnatus said he had not, so Brucalian said they should do that now. Carnatus suggested that they have a main in their presence in case they inadvertently brought an enemy in. The mortal sword reminded him that he was Fenner's own weapon. Carnatus wondered if that would be enough and continued on to do some magicking as they deciphered the message. Carnatus stepped back at the power of the message. He said there were a dozen souls within it, yet as one. He had never seen anything like it before. A man sitting cross-legged took form in an orb. Rukalian said to address him. The man sitting straightened up, excited that he had reached through, asking if they were in Capistan and if they were its rulers. The Destriant frowned and questioned if he knew who they were as the message suggested a certain level of knowledge of their reeve. Quick Ben cut him off, saying he was weaving. The weaving of his warns has a way of reflecting on those who stumble upon it, though only among priests, which was his intended target. He said he assumed they were mass council. Brucalian said they were not. Now Quick Ben was very interested. Brucalian said his call was answered by Destriant Carnatus, and he commanded the Grey Swords. Quick Ben exclaimed that if he wanted to reach a bunch of overpriced sword hackers, Brucalian cut him with a low and stern voice, saying, They were an army of the Boar of Summer, sword to Fenner. Each soldier had chosen this life, each blessed by the Destrian's own hand in the Tusked One's name. They may be sword hackers, but they are also their own temple. Their acolytes number over 7,000 and growing every day. Quick Ben relented and said he understood, but was surprised that they had allowed them to take more followers. Smiling, Brucalian said the city was only half-armed and that the city didn't allow women to fight, but the Boar of Summer didn't hold any such exclusions. Quick Ben laughed and asked if they were getting away with it. Brucalian said their new acolytes number 1,200, and since many second- and third-born daughters are cast into the streets, the rulers had not yet noticed their diminished numbers and asked the man for an introduction. He said his name was Quick Ben. 
Carnatus asked if he was from Darugistan. He said no. He was with Caladan Brood. They had heard the name since coming north. They knew him as a warlord, leading an army against the Empire. Quickben said the Empire was withdrawing its interests and that they seek to get a message to Capistan's rulers. Brucalian said he must choose. The Mass Council and Prince Jalarkin are balanced on the claim, on that claim, but there are other factions among the council, so there has been some infighting. The Grey Swords answer to the Prince. They have one job to make the cost of taking the city too high for the Panion Domen. The Seer's expansion would reach the city's walls, but would stop there. So he could deliver his message to him, Brucalian, and by extension the Prince. Or he can continue to try and reach the Mass Council. Quickben said they expected it to get messy as they knew almost nothing of their company. However, with this contact, he had now learned some things and was less ignorant now than he had been. He knew that the word destriant in Fenner's Reeve meant archpriest, but only in the martial arena, the temple of hallowed ground that was the field of battle. He asked if Fenner's representative and the mass council had, had acknowledged that he is outranked as a tiger does a cat. Carnata said he did not know this, did not know his title, and that there were indeed, indeed reasons for that, and that he was stunned by his knowledge of Fenner's priesthood. Quickben awkwardly accepted the compliment and decided that the warlord would be okay with the message being delivered to him. So he told the mortal sword that Caladan Brood marched to relief, marched to the relief of Capistan as it appeared the siege was imminent. The question would be, would they make it in time? Brucalian asked how large of a force was with Brood as the Pani and Doman would have at least 60,000, all veterans. Does Caladan understand what he marches to? Cookpen said, said they wouldn't have the numbers to match. However, they do have a few surprises. Quickben asked to reconvene their meeting as he needed to bring the warlord and his officers into this. Perhaps they could reconnect in an hour's time. Brucalian said it would need to be in the middle of the night as his daylight was busy and public, as were the princes. Quickben suggested two bells before the next dawn and that they would need a bigger tent, and he disappeared. Carnatus looked to Brucalian and said that was unexpected. Brucalian said they would need to condition the prince, as he thought the warlord's forces would not be able to achieve much against the Panians. They needed to keep the prince, the prince's vision realistic, if they were to tell him at all. Brucalian asked Carnatus what he thought of Quickben. He said he was a man of many veils, perhaps an ex-priest of Fenner, since his knowledge was spot on. Brucalian reiterated the many souls within one statement. It made Carnatus shiver and said... He may have been mistaken. Perhaps the ritual required other mages, and that is what he sensed. Brucalian looked at him long and hard and said he looked exhausted and to get some rest. Pretty big opening section there. Oh, yeah, for sure. I know I remember reading it the first time, and I'm like, what the fuck is going on here? You know, <laughs> I think I really understood the whole Quick Ben stuff. But when I reread it, next few times I, I really i really got a, a better picture of what was going on obviously like as a reader we knew it was quick ben coming through before they did Rickalian and incarnatus like got the introduction as to who it was so it was just easier for me to word things that way as i was going through it i don't think that's a terribly large deal no not at all um before we get into your your uh your comments 
on this section. I can't help it, dude, but every time I read the word carnadas, I think of like some type of taco ingredient. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, same, same. I'm thinking like carnitas, you know, some, <laughs> I agree. Yeah. Or I'm thinking like empanadas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Just wanted to get that off my chest first. That's all. Yep. Uh, I, I think we're on a similar page there. Yeah, I guess just uh, going through a few of my thoughts here. The Grey Swords Commander forbid such a tangled marathon, you know, of basically meeting after meeting. Uh, I'm sure, like, you probably deal with some meetings at your job. I couldn't imagine just, like, days and days and days of meetings. Like, these guys are soldiers. They don't give a shit, right? Like, they're like they want to fight. I mean, that's what they do. They're soldiers. They want to fight. They don't want to sit in meetings, so... I just thought it was kind of interesting that they forbid uh, that type of a situation. And I guess, I mean, I, I don't know, like even how many meetings do you ha need to have? Like, I, I, it kind of stuns me a little bit that, you know, somewhere in there that they said that they weren't even convinced that the Panion was going to lay siege to the city. Like, I think it's a little obvious it's going to happen. Like, what are you guys thinking that that's not going to be the case? Like, I don't think they're just going to go around the city or anything. You're know, like, you guys better be prepared. Yeah, and I think it's one of those things where they're maybe despising the whole debate aspect of it, and they're taking on the well. Let's just be, let's just go the easy route, and you know, better safe than sorry. Like, why do we have to debate this? Why can't we just be ready? Yeah, and I, th I think some of it comes down to like you have this prince, and then you have the council, and and none of neither one of them outright rules you know there's a balance there where you know if one of them was just the authority you know like the prince could be like nope we're preparing for a siege you know we're gonna have guys on the walls 24 7 or whatever like we got to get you know provisions get all that shit in get it ready you know this isn't gonna be a good time you know we're gonna be ready for this where the if i remember right i think the mass council is kind of like yeah we don't really know if this is gonna happen uh, or they got some different ideas that come up later on which don't seem great to me. Right. Well, the mass council for, and you know, they do have that in the, uh, the uh, dramatis personae, the glossary at the end. But from what I understand in the whole wrath, Fenner wrath trike thing is that they're essentially representatives of the gods is, is my understanding of that whole mass council stuff. I don't think that they, they're, they're, they're just, it's like a, you know, it's like a religious thing, right? They're not necessarily doing it because the gods themselves have allowed it, or maybe they have, I guess we don't really know much about the mass council and how they came to be, but that's just kind of my interpretation of it is that, you know, I am deeply, I deeply value so-and-so's gods, blah, 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 you know, so I'm going to be wrath, blah, blah, blah. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I felt like it was a representative or just like another term for like a priest as well, um, you know, along the same lines. Yeah, for sure. Um, my next point here is this this term that popped up twice in a page, but, you know, in his mind's eye, he saw the fur painted and articulated mask of one of the priests of the council. And I was a little confused by that. I guess I, I'm not really remembering the specifics now since it's, you know, been a while since I wrote this, but... So I guess I was feeling, you know, like, okay, in his mind's eye. So is he not actually seeing it? Is he just thinking about how things may play out? I don't know. I don't know that it's like a huge point or anything, but it just, when I read it, I, I questioned it. Gotcha. I don't know if you have anything to add on to that. Well, I mean, a mind's eye is just one thinking. 
is all that that ever equates to imagining right. imagining you know a scenario or a vision or a visual is my my assumption of what a mind's eye represents but just to see that term come up a couple times threw me off a little bit because that's a pretty specific term and to see that twice on a page i don't know i was just like well that's kind of weird gotcha i mean mind's eye is in the red ball books i've been reading when they're thinking about a scenario or a situation or i think they're just like envisioning what could happen yeah i agree with that yeah um carnatus the destrian uh, i really like that if he wanted to he could dismiss him with a simple gesture and to me i'm like god like damn that that seems like true power there like you can just flick your wrist and you can get rid of this guy like you you throw a little weight around then in that case yeah for sure which makes you think why why he hasn't why he's not doing it i mean granted this is kind of the most elaborate that we're getting of fenner's hierarchy and i'm definitely intrigued i definitely want to know more about how how all of this hierarchy works and how one gets assigned a destriant or mortal sword or you know the qualifications to to allow someone that title yeah because i know while well, they said like nobody's i think it was a little bit later on in the, the chapter but they said nobody's actually been had the title of destrian in like a thousand years or whatever it was you know it was more of like an honorific it seemed like but yeah uh, not for not for carnatus he's the real deal apparently right yes exactly i would agree um you had a couple thoughts here huh yeah the one thing when it it keep it Kovian essentially introduces himself into the scene and Carnatus says that it was the boar's storm this night. I'm wondering if this would be around the time that Haboric, Bowden, and Felicen were traveling the Ototero coast and called down the boar of summer. You think the storm that Carnatus is calling Fenner's is foreshadowing to Fenner being called down? Um, I don't know. I guess I did not think about that at all, but it could be. And even when, uh, you know, the Destriant is kind of like looking at Prince Jalarkin's tower at the beginning of the chapter or the, the beginning of the section, well, I guess both work. And he like asks himself a question and the wind answers it do you remember that oh all he heard was the howling wind or whatever yeah and i'm like okay is he kind of like asking his god or fenner for like some type of advice and it's only the wind that replies like is he expecting an answer is there supposed to be an answer so i'm wondering if he's just kind of like i feel like the wind howling is a representation of the fact that Fenner is not here. Like it's just an empty. Yeah. Gotcha. So. Yeah. I, I don't know. I did not think about that at all, but yeah, maybe the, the timing lines up. Good. I feel, yeah. I feel like, cause I mean, from what I understand, dead house gates and memories of ice are essentially kind of, so it's just one of those things where like, as I'm reading this, I'm like being recalled things from dead house gates. And I'm just like, I don't, I, I can't, I, I'm just so mind blown by the fact that you've got two different books set in the same series, but all surround different characters and they connect. 
I don't think I've really ever experienced that type of intricacy with books before. It is pretty wild. Um, but I still like, it's, it's like, I know I've seen people say like online, like Facebook posts or, you know, just reading through some like Reddit posts, like Deadhouse Gates will stick with you for a long time. And it is true. And even, you know, like a fictional book, like I do think about that a lot, like, especially like the journey for the chain of dogs. I'm like, God damn, like that's brutal. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was just kind of what like made me think again, really small, subtle little things that are being said here, but it just, again, makes me think about other things that have happened. Yeah, I, it, that was never a thought in my mind. So it's interesting that you bring it up. I wonder, uh, maybe, I think, maybe, I wonder, like, if we asked Mr. Erickson that, if he'd, uh, if that would be an answer, we'd be like, well, I don't, I guess I don't remember from when I wrote it, or if that's, you know, something uh, that would be there. Maybe you should jot that one down. That's, I feel like that's a good one to ask. If, uh, when the Destriant and Itkovian are talking, like the whole thing. Well, if, if, uh, you know, like the, the wind howling, you know, if that kind of aligns with where Fenner was, came down in Deadhouse Gates. Gotcha. Onwards. The next, the next thought that I have, uh, is when they're talking about Wrath Trake, the masked council member saying that he believes there are demons on the plains west of the city. I, that was some foreshadowing there that I just picked up as you were reading. So we could talk gotcha. about it later, but I think you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, my next thought here, I I thought it was interesting where Carnatus is talking. He doesn't understand the tiger's sudden claim to true godhood that a cult of a first hero um, and not the first hero. So, like, do you think that there are more than one of the first heroes? Because to me, that seems weird. Like, if something is the first, it should just be one, not multiple. Interesting. I guess I never really thought about it that deeply. But I took a multi- or a first hero as multiple. So, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's kind of interesting, just the word choice. And it just made me wonder, like, okay, so, I, I don't know. I mean, do they just call people from that time first heroes i i guess i don't know it just made me wonder yeah i feel like it has something to do with the amas and kind of one of the sections that we get to a little later all right maybe the reason why they call them the first hero or a first hero uh my next thought here uh brucalian saying it would be unwise to disregard such warnings during a patrol i don't really know what kind of warnings he's talking about discarding um, I know Ekovian says he doesn't discard anything and, you know, they would remain vigilant. They would be ready. I think they're talking about Wrath Trake's claim about demons on the plane. As okay. Well. Yeah. That it would be unwise to discard those during a patrol. And I guess I don't know why they would. Uh, I mean, they know somebody's coming towards the city, so I don't know. I mean, I think you would probably expect about anybody if you're out patrolling the surrounding area you know i mean okay well something's out there they're coming they might send you know scouts or whatever or an advanced force to try to draw us out and then fuck us up i don't know right yeah i mean the one really weird thing that i didn't pick up until this chapter is that fenner is a god of war I never like put those two pieces together. Although now that I put them together, I'm like, Justin, that's so fucking obvious. And Drake too, (laughs) he's a God of war. So like, think about it. 
right? Like all of the things that we read with the um, in Dead House Gates with Stormy and Gessler and all those guys, right? Like they were so gung ho for everything. And it's because they're just prepared for war. They're just always prepared to do battle. It just, it makes things like retrospectively fall into place for me around Fenner, which if you think about Haboric as well, right? Is there a reason now that he's an ex-priest of Fenner? Maybe because he finally didn't want to just violently go around killing and being prepared for battle, but talking about the history of what that shit does. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, another thought, I didn't jot anything down on this one, but just kind of thinking about it now, but, you know, or it's talking about how the city doesn't allow women to fight, but the gray swords take women into service. Yeah. I, just like, I don't know. It seems kind of dumb. Like if you're going to be, if you're going to have a siege laid upon your city, wouldn't you take about anybody who can fight? And I know, like, yeah, back in, like, the medieval times and shit, like, yeah, you know, like... Misogynistic. Wars, uh, yeah. Wars, like, like, typically a guy's thing, and I'm sure there's, you know, probably a few here and there, you know, where women, uh, I guess, like, Joan of Arc comes to mind, but uh, I don't know. I mean, especially if you're going to be outnumbered, man, I'd, I'd take anybody. <laughs> I don't know that I'd be happy to take, like, a 10-year-old kid, but if you can hold a sword, if you can shoot a bow, get up on the wall, buddy. Like... I mean, if you don't, like, you're you're fucked either way. Maybe that guy kills one guy. I don't know. Maybe he doesn't. But also, what did we learn about the Teneskauri in the last chapter? Right? What do they do to dead soldiers? Rape them. All right. But if these dead soldiers are women, no more children of the dead seed can be born because you need nine months to process. Women soldiers are the anathema to the Teneskauri. Think about That's it. That's an interesting thought. Did they did they say only like well, I, I don't know what if the, I mean you can kind of a dark thought, but what if there what if there's what if there's men, you know, what if they rape the dead women? I don't know. Yeah, but I mean right, it's not gonna work. You can't produce a, a dead seed from a dead woman. Yeah. You know? I mean you can do the first part, but you can't <laughs> birth yeah. you can't birth a baby, you know, whereas vice versa. Like, once the semen's in you, the host is living, like, baby. So, just saying, just a, an observation. Took a thought. Um, yeah, maybe that is the key to th the women will destroy them. Maybe. That's what I'm saying. What did you think of uh, Quick Ben, Carnatus, and uh, Brucalian's conversation here with Quick Ben? I think they could make a really good trio down the line. Think so? Yeah. You see them working like hand in hand together? Uh, to an extent. I don't know how much like they would, Brucalian and Cardinatus would trust him, but like they're obviously both pretty high ranking. I, I think I could see a good uh, collaboration there. Yeah. Well, I think they're a little awestruck as to how much Quick Ben knows about Fenner's hierarchies, right? Yeah, so. definitely. Yeah. Like I think it caught him off guard for sure. And you still don't think that Quick Ben could be in multiple places at once? No. <laughs> okay. All right. He's he's like a fucking Jedi. Like he's appearing in these like transcriptions or these like you know fucking video phone calls, for lack of a term, um, to talk to him. So yeah, I, unless he's going through a Warren, but I, yeah, I don't. 
there's too much shit going on. I, I'm not buying into it. <laughs> I mean, he he's not there, but he has sent an orb to go find him. How is is it not possible that he could have done that with Kalam too? Well, he was like a vision to Kalam on the ship in Dead House Gates, right? Right. Yeah, like sure, like I can buy into that. Like it's like I said, it's like a holograph. But I don't think he's physically just bebopping around the world. I guess who knows what he's really doing. I mean, Quick Ben to me, as much as I like like him as a character so far, because he's you know one of the few that has been consistent through the three books that we have read. I just I don't I just get this like level of unease, and like I don't trust him. You know, like I'm suspicious of him and I don't like it. <laughs> I want to know, <laughs> are, do you have good intentions or are you just like playing everybody false? I think all will be revealed in time. Yeah, right. We only have 700 more hours of the main 10. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and that's, that's an estimate. It could be more or less. Oh, right. Yeah. I, I just, I don't, I know at the end of the, the section here. Carnata saying that, you know, perhaps the ritual required other mages, and that was what he was sensing. But I, I don't, I don't think yeah. so. I, think. I don't buy that either. It's yeah. yeah, I think it's just all quick, Ben. I agree. But yeah, I, it, it was a it was a lovely opening. Uh, I just loved the sense of mystery. I know we got little tidbits of the history with Carnatas thinking that Prince Jalarkin's tower was not man made, which. We get a little bit more clarity on in your next section. Yeah, it, it was just, it was good. I really liked the visual that I got, even though I don't know these characters. It's kind of like it's our first introduction to them, but like, I still think, I feel like I've known them already, you know, like I don't feel estranged from them. I was definitely pulled into Carnatus and Brookhalian and, you know, Itkovian. Their names really, kind of make me tongue-tied a little bit, but yeah. <laughs> I think uh, by the end of this book, Brucalian might be one of my favorite characters, just based on uh, towards the end of this chapter. If he makes it. Yes, if he makes it. But just based on an interaction, I'm like, God, like this guy's fucking cool. <laughs> yeah, he does sound cool. I, again, I'd like to know a little bit of their histories and like how they came to be and stuff like that, but all in due time, I would imagine. Right. Are you ready to move on? I am. Well, whenever you're ready, I'm ready for you, buddy. All right. Quickben's spell faded quickly, and Quickben sighed and glanced to his right. The mage asked Whiskey Jack what he thought of the interaction. Whiskey Jack leaned forward and refilled his cup. He said that they'll fight for a while at least. Whiskey Jack made the observation that the commander looks tough, but it could all be for show. He asked Quick Ben what it was that he was called. Quick said that he called the man a mortal sword. Quick continued on to say that it was unlikely that the mortal sword was a show. Quick also explained that once long ago, the title mortal sword was for real. Long before the Deck of Dragons acknowledged the positions of knights of the High Houses, Fenner's cult had their own. They have the serious titles down with precision, Destriant, there hasn't been one in the cult for a thousand years. The mage ends by saying that the titles are for show. Whiskey Jack cut him off, asking why they would keep it a secret from the Fenner's priests on the mass council. Quick Ben stumbles a bit and then finds his answer and tells Whiskey Jack that Fenner's priest on the mass council would know it if it were a lie. Whiskey Jack said that this was an easy answer. 
all are all answers the right answers quick ignored the question and refilled his cup he stated that the gray swords were probably the best of the bunch in capistan whiskey jacks asked if they were fooled by the accidental contact quick ben said that he thinks so as he shaped the spell to reflect the nature of those that found it he admits that he didn't expect it to find pious faith though whiskey jack stood up grunting with all when all the weight was on his bad leg he said that he should go find dujek and brood now quick said that they were likely at the front of the column whiskey jack said that quick was sharp tonight as he made his way out a moment later whiskey jack's sarcasm finally seeped into quick's thought and then he scowled so very short section there yes it was yeah quite uh opposite of mine (laughs) my next couple (laughs) (laughs) yes you're definitely getting fucked for the most part in this book hey well you you kind of had it in dead house gate so yeah that's fair first thing that i had was when the quick was like no i don't think that you're right in saying that the mortal sword was for show and that was just my interpretation of quick's reply to whiskey jack being all show and no iron is that kind of what you took too? I guess I don't know. You know, they talk about. I don't. I, this might be one of your other points, but they talk about how you know these titles are for show, and like I just think like Mortal Sword, like, and that's not for show. So he's gonna die. Like, why is he not the Immortal Sword then? Right. I don't know if that's kind of what you're going for or not. Probably Maybe. not really. No, I just I think what Whiskey Jack is trying to say is that can they back up their titles? You know what I mean? Um. I mean, I think Brucalian can, based again on later on in this chapter. Yeah, for sure. And I think probably Carnatus can. I mean, well, I mean, yeah, I guess I think both of them can because obviously Carnatus could dismiss a guy with a flick of the wrist or whatever. I, I mean, he's he's definitely got some power. And while maybe we don't really know what that entails, like he seems like he is not a guy to screw around with. Neither of them. Yeah, that's fair. Um, the other, the other comment that I had was when they were talking about Fenner's priest on the mass council would know it for a lie. I don't think that this mortal sword and Destriant are not lying. I think that quick Ben just thinks that these titles are for show from what I could tell from the first section, they seem like the real deal, but I guess it's possible that they are for show. Like, I think that what quick ben and whiskey jack are potentially debating about is whether or not they achieve these titles rightfully i think i agree with you i i mean they I, to me they seem like the real deal uh but yeah like quick ben he's only talked to him for like five minutes right so all he's got is that first impression right but, but he uh, knows a lot more maybe, than he tells so maybe true. he does know that they are or are not the mortal sword and I think that with what Jack said, that, that yes, that's an easy answer. But are all easy answers the right answers, Quick? Quick, I think, is being fast and loose with Whiskey Jack here. I really do. He's holding something back. For what, though? I don't know. Let's it just get, I mean, especially at the end there, right? Where Whiskey Jack tells Quick that he was sharp tonight as he was like on his way out. And then a moment later, Whiskey Jack sarcasm finally seeped into Quick Ben. Yeah, that that threw me off a little bit because it didn't. I don't know. To me, it didn't make a ton of sense. Yeah, I think that Whiskey Jack knows that something is up with Quick Ben. 
it could have to deal with burn but i mean from what i understand paran basically blew that out of the water when he came you know at the end of chapter five when he came back from his visit with Rayist, he pretty much was like oh burn is dying or maybe i'm just mixing things up because there was so much in that chapter maybe whiskey jack still doesn't know about burn i think that whiskey jack is suspicious of quick ben which goes back to my comment in the last section where it's just like i'm suspicious of quick ben and what the fuck is you know what is it what what is it we just don't know yet no we don't and it's driving me crazy it's absolutely <laughs> so, oh well the, the other last thing that i had was i didn't think that this was supposed to be an accidental contact and i think that they were they were trying to make the destrian and the mortal sword think that it was an accident that they got to them but really it was quick ben's intention to get to them is what i'm getting here i can see that but i kind of wonder like if they didn't know exactly who they would get like maybe they had an idea i'm a, i guess i'm a little on the fence with it but i i can see your point and i'm not going to disagree with it yeah i'm, just, I'm not 100 percent sure on it i'm just i think that we should change quick ben's name to suspicious ben and that's it that's all i got suspiciously quick ben suspiciously quick ben <laughs> But yeah, that's all I had for that very riveting section. <laughs> yeah, a couple paragraphs there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> all right, well, we can continue on them. Across the street from the barracks gate and behind a fence was a cemetery that once belonged to the founding tribes of Capistan. The city's history was an odd and twisted tale. It was a Covian's job among the company to scour its depths. The position of shield anvil among gray swords was one that demanded scholarly pursuits along with the military responsibilities from understanding philosophy history and religion came the understanding of human motivation that motivation was the center of tactics and strategy just as people moved in patterns so did their thoughts and a shield anvil must anticipate and predict movements and thoughts in enemies and friend alike before the arrival of the Daru people from the West, the tribes that had founded Capistan had only a generation prior been a nomadic people. That restless feeling was still within the Capan people, and since the Daru people didn't intermingle, didn't intermingle much, that feeling to roam was hardly diluted despite the dozens of generations that had now lived and died in one place. Even still, much of Capistan's early history was a mystery, and Ekovian thought often on it even now as he led his two wings of soldiers towards the main south gate. The different districts that made up a city were called camps, and each was different. A usually circular self-contained settlement with a private open ground in the center acting as a hub. The spaces between the camps formed, and formed the city's streets. The only spot that was different was the Thrall, the home of the mass council which held the Daru style of grid work for streets. Ekovian suspected that the camps were just that, tribal encampments bound by kinship and nestled on the banks of the Catlin River for the seafaring people. It had become a focal point for trade. The result was one of the oddest cities Ekovian had ever seen. He thought while well, no people dressed the same, the beauty of the city was its people and not the buildings. The only things Ekovian was unsure of was the building the Grey Swords now occupied and Prince Jalarkin's palace. The old keep had been built before the arrival of the Kappans and Daru by an unknown people and nearly in the shadow of the palace. 
The palace was a beast unto itself, the architecture alien and unwelcome. He thought the Cap'n royalty likely inhabited the building because of its looks rather than its defensive capabilities. All in all, it was an interesting building. Through the busy main gate, the troop went right and towards the empty prairie. As they traveled, the sky cleared, and when they were about 14 leagues from Capistan, the sky was clear as they ate lunch. There was very little speaking as the meal was taken in, and they had not crossed paths with any other travelers, which seemed odd since it was the peak of caravan season. As the gray swords packed up their gear, the shield anvil addressed the soldiers. He told them to assume raptor formation at a slow canter. Outrider Sidless, 20 lengths to the point, everyone track hunting. A recruit asked what kind of tracks they were to look for. He only replied with any kind. All the soldiers mounted up, the recruit struggling. Ekovian thought she would figure it out or not be in the company long. He knew right now the horse was actually the recruit's best teacher. It knew its place in formation, and if there was trouble, it would get the recruit out of the way. Training recruits in the real world was one of the company's principles. She would be guarded by two veterans at all times. As they continued on, the heat grew more and more oppressive. The group came across a trail. It suggested a northwest trajectory. Whatever it was, was big, upright on two legs, and had talons. Ikovian asked if it was the only the one set and how old it was. He was told it was the only one, and it had come through this morning. Ikovian said they would follow the trail. Soldier told Ikovian the span between the steps of the creature is vast, and it is moving fast. The soldier guesstimated twice a canter. Ikovian thought they had found their demon. He ordered archers to the tips of the formation, and everyone should have lances out. Everyone besides Torin, Farakalian, and the recruit. The trail was easy enough to follow, a straight line northwest. Torin and Farakalian rode on either side of Ikovian with lassos. The sun continued its race across the sky. Ikovian noticed how deep the huge animal's tracks were pushed into the earth, and noted that with its speed, it was likely they wouldn't catch up to it, unless it decided to stop and wait for them. The group came to a stop as the lead soldier looked onward. It was Nikalian, his gaze fixed on something only he could see. His horse was nervous. As Ikovian crested the rise, he estimated that 200 paces away stood a creature. A long tail, two legs, swords for arms. Nikalian said he figured it would take the creature five heartbeats to cover the distance between them. Ikovian said, even so, it makes no move. He said they would choose the timing in this case. He told the lancers to hit the animal low and leave their lances in, hopefully to mess up its stride. Archers to aim for its eyes and neck or down the throat if they had the chance. They planned a staggered attack and random evasion after their weapons were planted. After that, it was sword work. With a hundred paces left between the two sides, the creature lifted its blade arms. At 70, it turned to face them, arms extended out. The archers turned its head into a pincushion, yet it seemed not to care about the arrows in its skull. Another round found the creature's neck and the archers veered off, making way for the lancers as they closed the distance in a charge. The creature charged in return with unbelievable speed and was on the gray swords in no time. A horse was cut in half. He saw a leg still tumbling. He saw a leg still in the in the tumbling half's stirrup. Itkovian was splattered with blood and gore as the beast snapped at him with its jaws, narrowly missing him. As his horse landed from its jump, its back end sunk down. Without hesitation, he took his heart knife and put 
his horse out of its misery. As he tumbled to the ground, he could see his horse had lost its back hooves. He looked to the beast as there were bodies of soldiers and horse alike on both sides of it. A woman's red-streaked brown hair hung from its fangs. Ekovian saw lassos, one around its neck, the other on its right leg. It started towards Ekovian, and he raised his longsword as it lifted its leg to take another step. The ropes for the lassos went tight and threw it into the air. The opposing forces of the ropes ripped, ripped its leg off while its head was also separated from its body. It hit the ground and did not move. It was dead. Trembling, Ekovian stood up. The archers rode up to him, and one pulled him up on his horse. Once on the horse, he saw four more creatures in the distance running at him. He knew they couldn't outrun them. Ekovian said they would split up. The horses swerved unexpectedly and tossed Ekovian from its back. When he looked up, he realized he was looking at a fur-clad corpse, and it told him they were relieved from battle. Ekovian was confused. The corpse said, Against undead, an army arises in kind. He heard fighting in the distance, but no screaming. Groaning, and with a growing headache, he rolled to his side. The corpse said he had ten survivors, which wasn't bad for mortals. He watched as there were only two of the four creatures remaining. The fighting was awful to watch as bits and pieces flew everywhere, but still the undead fighters continued to appear. Within another moment, the fight was over, and he estimated the four creatures took out roughly 60 of the warriors, yet they still came. The corpse warrior spoke again, saying they did not know Kachain Shamal had returned to this land. Ikovian asked who the warrior was. It introduced itself as Pran Cole of the Kron Talan Imus. They have come to the gathering, and apparently war as well. Pran also said he thinks he has need of them. Ikovian said he was right. They have need. What did you think of that uh, little skirmish? Mm, it was beautiful. It was one of those sections where like, I couldn't keep my eyes from reading. <laughs> that was definitely a section yeah. I was not going to stop off on. <laughs> <laughs> right. I didn't have a ton of uh, points here for this. Um, I think you had one to start one off here, right? I think so. I love the way that the section starts off. And I definitely think that Erickson is trying to tell us something about the history of the city and you know with the daru coming from the rest or from the west you know kind of mingling with these nomads that have decided to finally settle um and just it kind of seems like a city of two cultures is kind of the sense that i get here and i'm, I'm just you you think that it's like the kachain chamal that once existed here as we just kind of heard or perhaps the Bargast, as in the last chapter, Bosselain said that they were seafarers at one point. And there is a Bargast range right outside of Kafistan. So do you think it was one of those things where some decided to leave, some decided to stay? Because they didn't like the intrusion of the Daru from the West? I don't know. I mean, do you think the Kachain Shamal are something other than fucking velociraptors? Well, I think it's interesting because I'm thinking about it, right? So... The Talan Imas call themselves the First Empire, but we know from the previous book that they're not really the First Empire, and that I get the sense that the Kachain Jamal are actually the First Empire. But if you think about it in our own history, right, dinosaurs became before humans, so it makes sense why the Kachain Jamal are raptors. Yeah, I just mean, I mean, I don't, I mean, if 
do you think they were a creation of the Kachain Shamal people, or do you think that's like that is their species? Because I mean, oh. I don't know <laughs> if they if if they had fucking swords for arms. I don't know how they're building anything. Maybe all of them didn't have that. I don't know. But even still, like, I really don't know how something like that is going to craft a building. So I, I guess I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure either. I guess I, I know that he's trying to tell us something about the history, you know, and even even in that opening scene where it Kovian is kind of like perusing the cemetery, right? There seems to be these very elaborate headstones from the nomadic settlers. And then these like mundane, mediocre urns from the Daru people all in the same cemetery. He's trying to tell something what I'm not exactly sure. I just I don't know who or what it's pointing at. I did I did think it was interesting that they lived together, but they didn't really like intermix. Like you said, it's kind of two cultures living together. Yeah. What well, yeah. It, I don't know. I just I know that there's something there. I just don't know what. Sure. But yeah. Um, one of my only thoughts, uh, and I didn't really describe much about the palace, but it's it's been described twice. Uh, it you know it's just like sharp angles and odd and all this and that. And I think somehow somewhere down the road it's going to play a role into things. I don't really know how, but just to like describe it twice to me feels like it must be important in some way or another. Well, right. Which all of these like little subtle details kind of make me think that if the Kachain Chamal did occupy it, not only could it be a religious type of domination, but also the fact that maybe they're once trying to like reclaim what was theirs type of thing. You know, I don't know. It's just, I don't know. All the tidbits are being thrown at us, and I'm not sure what to make of it. And, you know, after the first sub book where I'm like, yeah, I get this. I'm following along. Now I'm like, fuck, what's going on? Well, I thought I didn't even think the Kachain Shamal were originally from this continent. I thought they were from somewhere else. I mean, based on what Pran says at the end of the section, you know, it sounds like they at one point, you know, lived here. Whether they started here, I don't know, but they may have originally come from somewhere, somewhere else. They populated this continent before anyone else did, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. This was a pretty fast-paced battle here. Um, you know, I, I went through it pretty quick, but obviously the Kachain Shamal are very fast. And Kovian impressively comes up with a strategy that sounds pretty tactically sound you know like okay archers like fucking take this thing put your arrows in its head if you get shot in the mouth like take it right yeah and then veer off and then we're gonna blow it in half with our lances <laughs> and if it's still not done then we're gonna hack it to bits um, yeah and they go through with it and it's you know and this thing obviously like i don't it's undead so they're kind of at a disadvantage i feel and this thing's just you know i just I'm thinking of a raptor running around at 70 miles an hour with two six-foot swords, just slashing and hacking and things going flying here and there and everywhere. Um, and then at Kovian, you know, his horse, I don't know if it lost like his whole back legs or just like part of it. And he just slits its neck in the middle of battle uh, because it's like, well, I mean, yeah, it's it's done for, right? It's missing part of its back legs. It can't do anything. And he just, without a second thought, 
kills his horse just so the thing doesn't suffer. I'm like, well, the goddamn, like, that's pretty, <laughs> pretty brutal. <laughs> it is really brutal, but you know, also like, I love it. So keep it coming, Erickson. And then the Talanimus come to the rescue here. Otherwise, I think Covium uh, would have been royally screwed. I don't yeah, think any was, of them would have survived. I was not expecting the Amass. So they must be like on their way to meeting up with Silver Fox, right? Yes. I, yeah, uh, they're on their way towards her. Yeah. One thing that I thought was funny is that uh, Itkovian told them to assume Raptor formation. I just thought that that was funny foreshadowing there. <laughs> I didn't really think about that, but uh, I guess, yeah, there's definitely some similarities there. You got something else? My last my last thing, is, again, when Pran saying that Jamal had returned to this land. So I think that that's evidence that they had once lived there. As I would imagine that the Amas probably know more about the Kachain Chabal than modern humans do. I will uh, flip the coin for you and say that maybe that doesn't necessarily mean that they live there. Maybe. Yeah, something like that. But also, now that I'm thinking about it, how can modern humans being evolution of the Amas when pretty much like 98% of them like went through the ritual, right? Like we only know of one Amas that has not gone through the ritual out of two. Well, I mean, again, my, my numbers are probably not right, but how can that small of a sample size build up the population that much? They're not the same species, I guess. I don't know. Maybe. I guess we'll find out, right? Uh, hopefully. Yeah. But I mean, I guess that's my current headcanon around it. Good. But yeah, it was a good section. It definitely is faster paced. Um, I was not expecting the MS to show up, but when I think about it, it's definitely convenient. Yeah. Uh, and, and obviously needed. Right. I mean, there has to have been a reason why they stopped, right? They could change them all are that reason. So I think that they're, they're worried themselves. I mean, enough for them to stop from where they're supposed to be and help these guys out. The Talan, you mean? Yeah. So they must have had some type of previous experience with the Kachain Chamal. Uh, yeah, I, I would think so. It seems to me they just don't like other undead things. <laughs> like, they're crouching on their turf or something. I don't know. Maybe, but I mean... There are wolves that are now undead that come to be revealed, and they're fine with them. Yeah, because they like went through the transformation with them. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I guess it's hard to say what exactly their motivations were, whether it was simply just because they were undead, or if it was because they had some type of previous encounter with them. Yeah, hard to. Yeah, we'll have to read on and find out. We'll we'll be able to read on today, which will be nice because it's been, like you said, it's been a month since we've been able to do that. Well, from what I understand, there's four, there's four founding races, right? The Fork Rule Sail, the Kachain Jamal, the Amas, and the Jaghut. We've only really met like three of them. And we don't even know a lot about the Kachain Jamal. No, they're kind like of. Like I said, it's just hard for me to imagine like a fucking dinosaur like building a building. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, I guess you're maybe you're right. Yeah, it, maybe it's some other type of. Yeah, I guess we'll find out. I'm sure all will be revealed in good time. Yeah, it's all we can hope for. But it's definitely kept me thinking, so. But yeah, I'm ready to move on if you are. Yeah, go ahead, man. All right. The recruit's face was bone white, 
She sat on the ground, eyes unfocused, splattered with the blood of one of or both of her guardians, who had given their lives to protect her. Itkovian stood beside her and said nothing. He couldn't help but to think that the brutality of the encounter may have broken the recruit, not to mention the two sudden deaths would haunt her for life. There was nothing he could do about it. He heard his name. He looked down, surprised that she had spoken. She was looking around at the legions of undead warriors. All that could escape her mouth was that there were thousands of them. Itkovian thought to himself about the undead warriors being pushed up from the ground. Itkovian responded to the recruit and explained that there were over 10,000. He explained that tales of the warriors had reached us, and that this seemed to be our first encounter with them, and a timely one at that. The recruit asked if they returned to Capistan now. Itkovian said that not immediately, and not all of us. There are more of these Kachain Chamal on this plane. The unarmed Talan, Paran Cole, had suggested a joint exercise, and which he had approved. The recruit said, bait. Itkovian raised, a, raised his brow and said that she was correct. He explains that the Talan can travel unseen, thus being able to make sure that they were safe during the hunt for the Kachain Chamal. He explains that he's attaching an escort for her to return to Capistan. A report must be made to the mortal sword. She slowly rose and explained that she wanted to stay. After a few traded words, Itkovian agrees to let her stay. Inside his mind, he's pleased with her words and strength. He told her to get back to her horse and sends and asks her to send Sidlis to him. He watched her join the rest of the ranks. Not long after, Sidlis approached Shield Anvil, as did Pran Cole simultaneously. Pran explains that they have unseen escorts awaiting the messenger. Shield Anvil explained that Sidlis was to report to the Destriant and the Mortal Sword. The Talan escorts were to speak to, with them as well and no one else. Sidlis said, Sir. It was Pran's turn to address them. Pran said that he had details to share with them. He explains that the Kachay and Chamal hunters were once known as Cal hunters, chosen children of a matriarch and bred for battle. They are undead, and whoever controls them hides his identity well. The Cal hunters were freed from tombs situated in the place of rent called Morn. Itkovian recognizes the name and explained that it was south of the Lamatath Plain on the west coast, directly north of the island the Segula hailed from. Itkovian explains that based on his maps and teachings that nothing was there. Pran shrugged and said that it had been a long time since they visited the rent. The Cal hunters may well be under the command of their matriarch, for the Talayan believes she has finally worked herself free of her own imprisonment. This then is the enemy you face. Browning, Shield Anvil shook his head and said that the threat to the south comes from an empire called the Panian Domen, ruled by a seer, a mortal man. He explains to Pran that the Chamal reports are recent, whereas the Domen has been going on for years. He went to say more, but then went silent. As 10,000 undead faces stared in his direction, Pran called Ecovian's name and asked if the word Panian had a particular meaning among the natives. Itkovian shook his head, not trusting himself to speak. Pran spoke the word Panian and said that this word was Jaghut word, a Jaghut name. Okay, so this was an interesting section. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, you're fine. Uh, I take all that I said back. Uh, I 
totally forgot about this section. I don't know why. From what we know about the prologue, right? Like the MS basically desecrated all of the Jaghuts from this continent. So my guess is that Capusan was built by Jaghuts. But they are prefer to be solitary. Fuck. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe they didn't at one point. I don't know, but they maybe. I mean... maybe. Uh, maybe the uh yeah who knows i don't know man okay all right well debunked again fair enough okay <laughs> i don't no mean to shit on your parade <laughs> yeah it's all good you're just remembering things that's good it's good it was really a test just kidding um, <laughs> i passed yes yes so the first comment that i had was uh when they're talking about or when he's thinking about he couldn't help but think uh, that the brutality of the encounter may have broken uh the recruit and not to mention you know the two deaths haunting her life there was nothing and there was nothing that he can do about it it's just some brutal ref reflections by shield anvil and like i kind of feel his pain somehow the blame is on him and he under underestimated his opponents but really it's not his fault maybe he honestly really had no idea but that doesn't erase what this recruit has to go through. Yeah, she saw some pretty terrible shit. Like, I mean, people just getting chopped in half, basically. Like, and then having, having you know, their blood on you and stuff, like, would be a pretty traumatic thing. Um, well, and yeah, they went I mean, from, like, 30 to 10. And now they're going to be, you know, one less because they have to send someone back to the mortal sword and the destrian yeah uh well, there'll be a little bit of trauma to work through there yeah i just thought it was a great representation of like we're not really getting the recruiter's perspective on what happened and it almost kind of seems like she's not letting her not letting it phase her which i think is absolutely fucking cool but at the same time like you get the sense of compassion here from the shield anvil yeah i think he feels bad about how it went down and <laughs> Yeah. The next thought that I had is after, like, kind of when she tells her that he wants, or after she tells him that she wants to say, although I, inter like, summarized it terribly, it was really powerful. This recruit not wanting to be simply escorted back to Capistan because Shield Anvil was attempting to be compassionate. She did not inter, like, she did not interpret this as compassion as he would have been saving her from witnessing the destruction of the Kachin Chamal. Kind of seems like she wants vengeance a little bit, instead of just being sent back to Capistan on a fool's errand, you know? I'm sure she does. I mean, she just watched some of her, you know, friends die. I mean, she might be a recruit, but I think there's probably a camaraderie built up pretty quick in, in that type of situation. I mean, I think about, like, the army. Like, you could go through basic training with, you know, a group of other guys and... um you know, it's like a whole nother family, and this is maybe not exactly that same way, but you're going through training, and they might kind of be like, oh, yeah, you know, just a, another recruit. We'll see if she makes it, but I'm sure they still kind of look out for her, you know, like, okay, like, you know, we need the help. Like, we got to make sure she gets through it. We got to get her up to speed. Like, we got to do everything we can to, to help her. Right. Well, I mean, in the you know, as they mentioned, during an attack, they have two veterans, guarding the recruit at all times so like you can't help but feel like supported even though there's death all around you right yeah the two veterans gave up their lives and they're willing to do this 
for a recruit like the 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 that seems to like be a culture thing among the gray swords yeah i can see that for sure so i just think that's absolutely cool the other thing that I thought it was really cool is Pran is kind of giving like a little bit of a history of the Kachin Shamal and the Kel Hunters being that they're chosen, chosen children of a matriarch and bred for battle. So they could potentially go back to your point of being human and maybe are just like the Talan who have a kinship with the A or the I. Maybe these are people that have a kinship with dinosaurs. You know, possibly as he's explaining that they are a dead and whoever controls them hides his identity. Well, the Talan believe that it's coming somewhere to the south. But what evidence are they really looking at to see this? Other groups kind of suspect this as well, but we don't have really any data about. Sure. Sure. We do. What? The, the rent more in itself. I think they know that. I mean, that's where they came from. Right. I mean, I guess like if you're if you're on the east side of the United States and you say they're coming from the south, would you think California or would you think Florida? Florida. Well, Morn is on the west side of the continent. These guys are all the way on the east side of the continent. That's kind of where like I feel like the Panion Domen is making its way. I mean, obviously it's making its way to Capistan from the south. But on the east side of the continent. I gotta look at my map. <laughs> Maybe I just feel like the directions are the other way, but I don't know. Lady Envy later on in this chapter is on the west side north of Morn. Like way north of at whatever the city was or whatever. Yeah. I don't know. I kind of going off gonna switch directions a little bit. You know, they do say whoever controls them hides his identity well i don't know i just i have this feeling in me that i wonder do we already know who actually controls them because if we do i just there's i have like this gut feeling that it's either lady envy and if it's not then calor because i don't really trust either one of them um or it could be somebody we don't even know yet and then i don't know who it is but if it's a if it's somebody that we know, I just, like I said, there's just something inside of me that tells me it's one of those two. Hmm. I mean, it wouldn't be Lady Envy. I mean, you can eliminate that because they're saying that controls them, hides his identity well. Granted, that doesn't really mean much in this world, but I feel like they know that he or they are male. Or they're assuming, I guess, uh, right. to defend my point on it. But But at the same time, they do say matriarch, which implies female. So, I don't know. Like I said, it's just a feeling I can't quite shake yet, and maybe I'll be proven wrong, which I won't be upset about, but it's just, I don't know how to describe it anything other than a gut feeling. Yeah. Well, and I think that all these kind of, uh, my last couple of comments tie back into this. So, I guess we could just move on there. But, sure. you know, Pran asks if, not Paran, but Pran, asks if the word panion had any particular meaning among the natives and i couldn't tell if in the book because it was saying that if coven was like shaking his head i don't know if it was like yes or no but i'm unsure if increment or it covian is shaking his head yes or no but i took it as a no to pran's question so when pran is asking it covian 
if the panion had any particular meaning, he's shaking his head now. That's what I thought. Okay. Panion, I guess, is a jag hut word, a jag hut name. So do you think that this is all coincidence or is there a level of play here? My thoughts for me take me to the jag hut unleashing the matriarch at morn. And now they're working together. Revenge is somehow some way shape in revenge in some way, shape, or form. Maybe this is why Pran and Kron did what they did with Silver Fox. So is it potential that the Jag Hut, the Panion is a Jag Hut, disguised as like a mortal man, trying to take back his continent all these years ago and has freed whoever from Morn to help him, like recruiting? I don't know, man. I, I, don't, I don't know. Yeah, I'm really not sure. I think it's it's one of those things for me. I'm going to have to just read and find out what's, oh, yeah. what it well, is and what's not. We have three founding fathers kind of going at battle here. So what better way to take out the Amass, right, than to take back their continent, right? And if this is all something that Pran and K. Rule, sorry, Pran and K. Rule, if this is something that they anticipated all those all the way back to gardens of the moon like hey the penny and domen's on the rise like they're coming back to take the continent but also i feel like the panion and the crippled god are connected in some way together so what better way to yeah i don't know i don't know <laughs> not enough information yet or yeah. or we don't know how to decipher it right yeah it just there's so many things at play here, which is typical of of Erickson, which I absolutely love. I love, <laughs> I love it. So kind of getting back to where we don't really know what's going on, whereas in the first book we're like, oh okay, I can follow this. This makes sense. We finally got a an explanation as where the Segular are from. Maybe it's just because it was not that long ago when I summarized it, but I felt like. We had heard that before, but that's just me. I think that we didn't know the exact whereabouts, and that's what we were discussing. We get like an actual location. Yeah, I feel. I guess I felt like I knew they were from somewhere near Morn, but that was kind of about it. Oh, gotcha. But yeah, we did. Get, we did get a little bit more description there. Well, do you think that the Segula have something to do with Morn? I mean, obviously they're at play here. I don't know. I mean, I kind of feel like they just stick to their island for the most part, unless they're provoked. It's almost like they're like a hive of killer bees or something. Like, you know, you poke yeah. the nest and then they're going to wreck your day. Hmm. But if you well, leave them alone, I don't know. It sounds like they are being used based on some of the things that happen in a later section. Yeah. But outside of that, the only other thing that I had was Pran was saying that the Talan believe that the matriarch or the matron finally worked herself free of her own imprisonment. And I found this a really funny way of trying to es explain her escape. Does it mean that her imprisonment is insinuating that she had something to do with imprisoning herself? I guess I didn't think so. I feel, you know, you feel like she was put there forcefully. I thought so. Ooh, weird thought. What if the Panion is one of the children that was put into Morn by Lativa or Kilava. Where the fuck did Lativa come from? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I guess it could be possible. I mean, they were part Jaghut, right? They were, they were Jaghut. Interesting thought. 
Mm. It's a bold strategy, Justin. Bold, bold. All right. Well, yeah, that's all I had about that very uh, straightforward and confusing section at the same time. But, <laughs> yeah. Straightforward and confusing. Yes. All right. Well, uh, we're nearing halfway ish section wise. Mm-hmm. All right. We'll continue on. Tuck sat by the fire, his lone eye watching Balljag as it slept. The huge wolf-like creature looked like it could run you down instantly or even over long distances. It opened its eyes looking at Tuck. He said it was supposed to be extinct, vanished from this world for a hundred thousand years. So what was it doing here? The eye was his only companion right now as Lady Envy had detoured through Warren to the city of Kalos to resupply. He wasn't sure what she was resupplying, but his suspicions left him no closer to answers as to her reasons. She had taken the dog Gareth with her as well as Mach. He figured it was fine to leave Senu and Thrul as Tool had handled them both, but he wondered what was important enough for Lady Envy to break her rule of having a minimum of three servants. Tool had left uh, earlier on another hunt, and while the other two Segula weren't in a talking mood, they sat off to the side, perhaps enjoying the sunset or just relaxing. Tok wondered what was happening in the north. He knew Dujek marched to war against the unknown Panion Doman, and the One-Arms host was like his family. They were the only thing he knew. He wondered what kind of war it would be. He had been feeling impatient, but forced it back down. He thought to himself and damned Hairlock for sending him so far away and wondered why he had was spit out at morn. And where the hell did all that time go? Tok had begun to rethink his stance on happenstance, and with that, he felt as though he was on shaky ground. He continued his thoughts to himself, to mourn, and its wounded Warren, to mourn, where a renegade Talan Imus waited not for him, but for Lady Envy, but not just any renegade Imus, the one he had met before, in fact, the only one he had met before. On top of that was Lady Envy and her goddamn Segula and the dog too. And now they're all traveling north, where they all want to be. So it must be a happy coincidence. He didn't like the thought of being used. He had seen how that worked out for his friend Paran, but he knew Paran was tougher than him. When things got tough for Paran, he got tougher. Not talk, though. He gets hit, and he's liable to roll over and give up. Still thinking, he thought about how he was in the middle of nowhere, and his only friend was a wolf that was supposed to be extinct. He looked to the wolf and asked where its family was. An answer came in a sudden explosion of colors behind where his missing eye should be. The colors turned to an image. His kin, after three muskox, both stuck in deep mud, doomed to, doomed to die. The young pup could only whimper and circle. Desperate love, unanswered, and panic filled the air. It was confused. It fled and wandered, feeling only hunger. Then, standing before her was a figure, all in black, reached out. Compassionate, warmth, and welcome all took and all it took was a single touch to the, the beast's lowered forehead. Tok recognized it as an elder god's touch, and he heard a voice. You are the last now, the very last, and there will be need for you in time. Thus, I promise that I shall bring you, to you a lost spirit, torn from its flesh. A suitable one, of course. For that reason, my search may be a long one. Patience, little one. And in the meantime this gift. The pup slept and dreamt of being with its kind, an eternity of loving dreams, secure with joy, made bitter only by waking hours, waking centuries, millennia spent alone. 
Baljig's eyes had seen more of this world than could be believed possible. Finally, however, the gift had been delivered. The torn soul delivered to her own, where they merged and eventually became one. Yet there was still another layer of loss and pain, and it seemed as though uh, the wolf sought redress. Tuck wondered what the wolf wanted of him. No, not of him, but his companion, Onos Tulin. That is who he awaited with Lady Envy. And Gareth? Well, that's a mystery for another time. Tuck blinked and came back to a dozen pace away was Tool with a few rabbits dangling from his shoulder. Tuck asked Tool what it was the wolf wanted of him, or Tool. Tool answered and said an end to her loneliness and asked Tuck if he had given an answer and dropped the hairs to the ground, saying he could do nothing for her. Tuck was surprised at the tone of his voice as it was the first time he had heard anything but a cold and lifeless tone. Tool told him he had heard wrong and asked if he was done making his arrows. Tuck said he had made 12 of the ugliest arrows he had ever seen, but he was proud to own them. Tool said they would serve him well. Tuck said he hoped he was right and he would make dinner. Tool told him that was Senu's task. Tuck said he would not treat them as servants. They were Segula, and he would treat them as traveling companions while Lady Envy isn't here, and even if they won't talk to him. He took the rabbits and cleaned them. He asked Tool if while hunting he saw anyone else out on the Lamatath Plain. Tool said he saw no evidence of others. Just animals. Talk asked how it was whenever he scanned the horizon, he saw nothing. Tool said it was vast, and there are effects of his Telan Warren, though it is weakened. Someone is draining his powers, but don't ask him about that. Talk said they were ancient memories. Tool responded by saying, memories of ice. And he had deduced by what he had said earlier that there was a binding of souls that had taken place between him, or Talk, and Baljag. Tool wanted to know how. Tuck said he was not aware of any soul binding. He was only granted visions. How? He didn't know. But there was enough emotion in it to make one despair. Tool said every gift was edged. Tuck said he supposed that was true, and he was beginning to see the truth in the legends. Lose an eye to gain true sight. Tool asked about how he lost his eye. Tuck told him it was from a burning chunk of moonspawn. Tool said it was stone, and Tuck agreed. Tool continued saying obelisk, the ancient deck of holds, known as Menhir. He was touched by stone, Chen Real Lik Fayal. Tool gave him a new name, Aral Fayal. Tuck said he didn't ask for a new name. Tool said that names were not for the asking, but earned. Tuck said it sounded like the bridge burners. Tool did say it was an ancient tradition, and Tuck snapped saying that's fine, but he didn't think he had done anything to earn a new name. Tool said he was sent into the Warren of Chaos and survived it, which was an unlikely event in itself, and when Morn's rent should have taken him, it cast him out instead. Stone had taken one of his eyes, and Baljag had chosen to share her soul. She had seen a rare worthiness in him. Tog still didn't want a new name. Tog wanted to change the subject, so he asked what Tool's name meant. Onos meant clanless, uh, clanless man. T is broken, and Ool is veined. While land is flint, and in combination, Tulin is flawed flint. Tool said there were layers of meat to the meaning. Tool said from a single core are struck blades, each finding its own use. In veins or knots of crystal lie hidden within the heart of the core. Shaping of the blades cannot be predicted, each blow breaking off useless pieces. So it was the family he was born into. Struck wrong, each and every one. Tok said he could see nothing wrong with him. There were no flaws. 
Tool said he was born in Tarad's clan. Tarad's resilience in him was misguided, and the Tarad clan no longer existed. At the gathering, Logros was chosen to command the natives of the First Empire. He counted on his sister, who was a bone caster, being one of his servants, but she defied the ritual. Thus, the Logros Tolanimus were weakened. The First Empire fell. His brothers Tibur, Tendara, and Hanif Laf led hunters to the north and never came back. Since they failed, he, or Tool, was chosen as First Sword, but he had, had abandoned the Logros Tolanimus. He travels alone, committing the greatest crime known to his people. Tok put it together, he was returning to his people. Tool didn't respond and looked to the north. Baljag moved and sat next to Tool, matching his silent demeanor. Tok had a chill and wondered what he was heading into. He looked to Senu and Thrul, saying they must be hungry and impatient. He didn't have time to finish his sentence. Confusion! Yeah. Uh, yeah, a lot of history again here. Mm-hmm. For sure. I didn't have, again, you know, in this section, I did not have a ton of points to make. It was a very interesting chapter, but I did like how it kind of made a callback to the prologue. And it just, it feels even more sad now. Um, you know, the young pup we know is, is Ball Jag, right? Yep. And he's, you know, he's watching his, his, uh, his pack you know, a few of the remaining pack basically die off and he's just sitting there whimpering and circling. He can't do anything to help him. And now he's the only one left. Right. Yeah. I thought that that was super sad. And, uh, you know, again, something I was not expecting to read, but also really cool to know that that pup in the prologue is ball jag. Yeah. And just, you know, continuing off of that, you know, the line desperate love and answered and panic filled the cold air. Like, God, like that was just, it was, it was a hard line to read. To me, it just thought of like a, like a dog watching you abandon it. Like those people are assholes and I don't know how you do that to an animal, but to me, it was just a heart tugger of a, of a line, you know? Yeah, for sure. What did you think about the, uh, the elder God? Uh, I guess I didn't really have any specific thoughts about that, you know, where, it's saying, you know, you are the last now, the very last, that, all that. Yeah. I guess I didn't have a thought as to who it was. Were you thinking it was cruel or who? Yeah, are you thinking I think it was? it's cruel. Yeah. I guess this is kind of what I, I assumed. So I didn't, I guess, Talk think about much of it. Yeah. Gotcha. I mean, I guess you, you have notes on these, so I won't, I won't steal your thunder. So we'll just, uh, we'll, we'll keep going. <laughs> All right. I guess it, this might just be a thing where I didn't remember, but for whatever reason, I assume Baljag was male. Uh, but maybe I'm just misremembering things. Um, but Baljag is a she. Yeah, I guess I, in my head canon, I always thought that it was it was male as well. But she is a she. Yep. Um, so I just you know just one of the things I got to self correct on. Yeah, I guess I. Sorry, go ahead. Go. Nope, I was moving on. Go ahead. Uh, okay. <laughs> but I this, this is the part that I'm kind of confused about and I know that we'll we'll talk about it, but you know, cruel or this elder god says that I promise that I shall bring you a lost spirit torn from its flesh and a suitable one of course. But until until then this gift. What I think this this gift is your next comment here. The dream, basically. Yeah. So interesting. I, think, I did not think of that. I think that cruel or this other god 
basically like forced this thing into hibernation or like a suspended animation type of thing where there was just an eternity of loving dreams secure with joy made bitter by the combination of this lost spirit is fine i think i can get on board with that i hadn't thought about that but i think that's a good thought yeah i mean you know you've got dreams being with you know your pack or family whatever word you want to use there and yeah uh, now you know now you're going to be awake and alone until i can find something suitable yeah it's a good thought i did not think about that at all i guess like i feel like this section is trying to make you think that talk talk spirit is now within ball jag but i don't think that's the case uh sorry run that by me again so I think what this the section is trying to make the reader think is that ball jag and talk like talk soul has been combined with ball jags, and I don't I don't think that's true. I think that ball jag purely just allowing him a vision. Um, I guess I thought that they were merged or yeah. are going to be if they haven't yet. But I mean, how could it be talk soul if talk wasn't even alive when? waking centuries millennia spent alone why why i mean he's alive now ball jags there now why did it need to be like i i get the sense that they are just recently joined i would but i mean that kind of like uh what's the word that i'm looking for it discontinues the thought that of what we just talked about where if cruel or this elder god is allowing ball jag an eternity of loving dreams secure with joy only to put this lost spirit in the dog and now is spending millennia alone how could talk spirit if if the spirit entering ball jag is what made ball jag awake and spend eternity alone how could it be tox I don't know that I necessarily have an answer for that, but obviously like this elder God or cruel, whoever it is, they had to find somebody worthy, right? That's like, I don't, I, I guess I wasn't thinking that it was somebody from the past that's going to be merging souls. And even like, so talk thinks it's tool soul, right? Right. And tool basically like in, in some form or another shuts that down. I don't remember exactly how he worded it, but also, I mean, I know talk didn't think, like his soul was merged with it, but I don't. I, th- I feel like it was alluded to that it's tox. Like I feel like Tool thinks it's tox, and maybe that's what we're supposed to think, and maybe it's a misdirection. I guess I don't know. Yeah. But I guess that's the train I'm I'm on. Is I'm I'm thinking it's Team Talk. I think it's a different soul. I think a different soul resides within Baljag. Who? I don't know. I don't think it's tox though. Well, we'll have to see who's right on that. I guess. <laughs> I think talk what hap what what gets explained in the next section. Okay. Um but anyway, continue onwards. Just the the line you know about the dream and stuff. I thought that was a really well-written line. Um, yeah. It was beautiful. Going on from there, uh you know, there was another layer of loss and pain. It seemed as though uh they sought redress. I didn't really know what redress meant, but it's uh, essentially it's to right or wrong. So I had to look that word up to for that to make a little bit more sense to me. But do you think that's the spirit within the lost spirit within ball jag? Or do you think that's the wolf itself? I'm not sure. What do you think? Do you think the right, the wrong is 
kind of what gets explained later on in this in this chapter when Pran is talking about the A Tulin or the A uh, how they were like a how they were a part of the gathering or the ritual or whatever. Yeah, maybe I, it could be. Or do you think it has? I think it has something to do with the soul. I don't think it has anything to do with the amass. I think it has something to do with the soul. Basically, that, that was the wrongdoing. Wrong. Yeah, like something that like my immediate thought goes to Deceem Altor. Why I don't know. Just something to do with maybe his decision to join Hood uh, to right a wrong because it ended up in his daughter getting killed. Or I know she's in Tremolor right now. I don't know. I just yeah. That's just what I go to. I, I I don't know why. I don't have any data. It doesn't make any sense. But that seems like a big a big wrong that may want to be righted. We'll have to jot that down and and see where that plays out to. Mm-hmm. To me, that like I was not expecting you to say that at all. So that feels kind of like out in left field. But I mean, that's how you feel. That's fine. Like I said, I I have a feel. You know, like the Lady Envy or Calor thing to me is just a gut feeling. You have a gut feeling. Both have yeah. these gut feelings on different things. For sure. But, you know, I guess this is the beauty of these books is that there is a lot of misdirection. So the other thing that I wanted to talk about is just the uh, um, book. Where is it? <laughs> oh, yeah. Tool uh, said that his Talan Warren is weakened uh, because someone is draining his powers. But don't ask about it. You know, I feel like that's obviously correct. But who do you think is potentially draining his powers? Silver Fox. You think it's Silver Fox? But she can't draw on the life force of something dead. You just simply think it's the Warren itself? I don't know. I guess I just, my mind went to Silver Fox. (laughs) Hmm. Yeah, I guess it must be, yeah, attached to the Warren. I don't know. Weird. All right. Well, Um, now now you've got me wondering. Yeah, there's just there's so much in this section. Um, the other thing that I thought was interesting is just the whole talk talking, talk and tool talking about the obelisk, the ancient deck of holds known as Menhir, and how talk was touched by stone. And it just goes back, it makes me think back to when like Spindle, you know, Hedge, Mallet, and um. Uh, the other two chicks. I can't remember their names right now. What are their names? Drawn a blank. It's like on the tip of my tongue. Yeah, I want to say it starts with like a B or something. Yeah, yeah, I'm not remembering. Uh, picker, picker, and blend are uh, all okay. blend. Picker, spindle, mallet, and hedge are all around the table, and they're talking about. They're you know they're playing many many games of the deck of dragons and. They were talking about obelisk in here. And I thought that that was referring to the seven cities, but I think that might be actually referring to talk the younger here as tool essentially has given him a new name based on an ancient hold touched by stone. I don't know where to go with that. I don't really know either. I mean, do I feel like ball jag and talk have some type of connection? Sure. But I don't think it's talk spirit. Because he is not, the spirit has not been torn from flesh. What if going through the Warren did, though? I don't think, because, and I know you we're going to get to that, and maybe we could just talk about it now, but I don't think that Morn's Rent actually took Tak. 
because he was in the war in the chaos and from what i understood a unless morn is the warren of chaos I, yeah i guess i don't know because uh, like one of my points here was you know a tool satak was sent into the warren of chaos he survived it which was pretty remarkable in itself and then morn's rent should have taken him but it cast him out instead right which that part is really confusing to me because it i mean then that that would have to insinuate that the warren of chaos is morn or morn is the warren of chaos which would then mean because if you remember earlier in the book we come across that section with the one-eyed wolf right which yep. i think is ball jag right he only has or the, right. she only has one eye right. so she was traveling more so i don't know there's so many things that like say that there that maybe it is her soul or you know that she can use him in some way i don't know it's just it's also fucking confusing right now and i don't know what to make of it so <laughs> yeah um i guess if we're ready to move on here i don't know if you had anything else oh you had one more thing though I have, yeah, I have one more. Well, actually I actually have two. This uh, next oh. one I didn't really jot down, but what do you think of like Tool saying how fucked up his family is? You know, they were all struck wrong, each and every one of them. I didn't really know what to make of it, to be honest. Like, you don't understand the context of like how how his family was fucked up. Just like they're uh, yeah, I don't I don't know either. But just to like be able to recognize that <laughs> something's like we're all. Like my entire family, my entire clan, like we're all, you know, we're all a cran short of a full box. <laughs> you know, <laughs> something's not right with us. I don't know. Seems odd. I'm sure that it probably has some significance. What though? I I don't have any context, so I'm, I'm unsure. I feel like I'm not doing the section justice. I feel like I should be, I should understand this more, but I just, I can't, I can't tie it to anything. So I feel like I'm going crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't feel bad, man. Um, my last thought then, so he's traveling alone, committing the greatest crime known to his people. So is it that he's traveling alone? Is that the crime? Or is it going back to his people? That's the crime. In either uh, case, sounds like a lonely life, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah. It It's from what I understand or from what I remember is that uh, it was a crime to leave your clan. And that's what Tool did. So by extension, then, if you leave your clan, like coming back is probably not going to like, I imagine they're not going to welcome him back with open arms necessarily. Right. It's kind of the sense that I get, which you're right, is really sad. Yeah. Well, that's all I've got there. If you'd like to read your next section. All right. Cool. Well, here we go. Rage. Cold. Deadly. Unhuman. Talk was suddenly elsewhere seeing through a beast's eyes not the eye not this time and images from not long ago but presently along with a flooding of memories a moment later all sense of himself talk was swept away by the creature's thoughts he was leaking blood from his wounds smearing the grasses as he crawled up the hill's slope he thought to himself that at the end here memories came flooding back the final days so long ago had been chaotic. The ritual had unraveled unexpectedly. Madness gripped the soul taken, and that madness splintered the more powerful, breaking one into many, thus birthing the Deivers. The Empire was tearing itself apart. Inside his mind, he names himself. He is Treach, the Tiger of Summer, 
He recalls being there at the end, one of the few survivors left after the Talan were done with them. A brutal, merciful slaughter. The Talan had no choice. He understood that now, but none of them were prepared to forgive. Treach recalls the warren that they cut down on a distant continent. It had turned the Eastlands into molten stone that cooled and became something that defied sorcery. The Talan had sacrificed thousands to cut away the cancer they had become. It was the end of the First Empire. They had fled. A handful of survivors, Rylandris, old friend. They had a falling out and clashed, and clashed again on another continent. Treach had gone the furthest and found a way to control the gifts. Soul Taken and Deivers both. He thought about Misremd and where he had gone. Ascending and a fierce arrival, the first heroes. Dark, savage. Treach remembered a vast sweep of grasses beneath a darkening sky. A wolf, its single eye like a smear of moonlight on a distant ridgeline. This strange, singular memory is returning to him now, but why? Treach had walked this earth for thousands of years, his human memories fading until they were gone. The memories were returning in like a flood, even as his body was growing cold. He had tracked the mysterious beast for days. Sense, unknown to him, left him curious. He thought only of destruction, as he had gone without a challenge for so long. The White Jackal, past centuries dead, was the last of a challenging adversary. The tiger's arrogance was legendary. The four Kachain Chamal hunters had circled back and waited for the tiger. He had gave them a fight, tearing into their flesh and shattered bones. However, this was not the case, as Treach now lay dying from a dozen mortal wounds. He should have been dead already, but he hung to his bestial rage that kept him going. The four Kachain Chamal left him there to die, knowing the tiger of summer would not get up. Laying in the grass, Treach watched his four attackers reach a crest on a nearby hill. Suddenly, a sleek, long black shape flowed from the grasses and was among the Kachain Chamal. Power flowed like water. The first Kachain Chamal withered under the onslaught. The clash descended beyond the crest, no longer in his eyesight. He, sur he heard the scuffle continue on as he began dragging himself forward, inch by inch. Within moments, all sounds of battle died. Treach struggled to continue on, his blood a sleek trail in the grass as he crawled onwards towards the crest. This will, his will to live was something bestial, something that refused to recognize the end of his life. The tiger of summer has a memory of prey in his mouth and thought to himself that he now knows what it feels like and is humbled by the memory. She appeared before him, small but not frail, with the fur of a panther on her shoulders. He thought to himself that seeing her broke his heart. She approached, settled down, put his head in his lap, and was stroking the blood and dried froth from around his eyes. She told him that they were destroyed in the language of the First Empire. It was not so difficult as the silent hunter, Treach, had left them with little. Her softest touch, and they flew apart. Inside of his head, he calls her a liar. She smiled and said that she had crossed his path before, but didn't approach because she recalled the rage Treach had when they destroyed his empire long ago. Inside his head, he said that things have cooled since then. He doesn't blame the Amass, as what they were doing was just, was just a necessity. The wounds were mended. She spoke saying that the Amass couldn't take sole credit for that, 
as others were involved in repairing the shattered Warren. The Talan did nothing by slaying his kind, or those they could find. It was their singular skill. Treach in his mind said killing. The female Talan said yes, killing. Treach said that he cannot return to his human form, and now he dies. The Talan said that it has been too long, and she doesn't have any skills in healing. The Tiger of Summer asked for her to end his life. The Talan said that these were words a man would speak. Who has unchained his memories? Who has returned him to himself? For centuries you were a beast. There's not coming back from that, but yet? Treach said that yet he is here. The Talan said that she suspects that when his life fades, it will not be Hood's gate that he sees, but rather elsewhere. She could not, not offer any certainty, but she has left the stirrings of an elder. She has felt the stirrings of an elder god, perhaps the most ancient one of all. Subtle moves are being made, and select mortals have been chosen and shaped. She wonders why, but she believes that it would be an answer to a grave threat. She believes that the game that is playing out will take a long time. He asked if, he, if it was a new war. She scoffs and says that is he not the Tiger of Summer? It seems this Elder God has plans for Treach. He amused in his mind, saying to her that he never, he's never been needed. She replied that changes have come to them all, it seemed. Treach said that he hoped to meet her again, as he'd like to see her as the Midnight Panther once more. She told him farewell, and that at that last moment, saw what he only felt. Darkness surrounded him, vision from two eyes to one. One. Looking across a stretch of grass as night fell, watching the massive tiger pause warily above the dead bull Ragnag, on which it had been feeding. Seeing the twin flares of its cold, challenging glare, all so long ago now, then there was nothing. Whoa, I think that this is probably um, one of two of my favorite sections in this chapter. I really enjoyed this one. It is a good one, yes. I liked it also. Which makes me, you know, this is the, this is the section that makes me think that talk is not like soul shifted or soul shifted or you know being connected with the eye i think that there's maybe a kinship there for whatever reason i think the eye has like seen his worth as tool kind of suggests in the previous section so you were saying i and i had to think about it for a second <laughs> i was thinking like e-y-e-i yeah um, i'm like what the fuck are you talking about a um, and then I was like, oh yeah yeah ball jag no <laughs> i'm like oh the wolf yeah yeah it just took me a second i had to like get my head back into that space yeah so i think what's really cool about this section is we get a lot of uh you know little tidbits of history not really a full answer but it's some nice like rich detail and the first thing that i pointed out was the ritual had been unraveled unexpectedly so I'm going, okay, is this the Talan ritual or is this like inferring something else? But if it is the Talan ritual, which I'm more confident that it is, are Soul Taken, are they the way that they are because of this unraveling? Did thing, I mean, obviously things did not go the way that they were envisioned, but did the Talan expect 
that the soul taken joined them in the ritual and was that the expectation but for whatever reason that went that part went awry i guess i read it and thought they were the oops like <laughs> uh they were the surprise you know uh there was a thing that happened that they didn't expect to happen. Well, I think what they didn't expect was for the soul taken to go mad. As it states, like, right after that sentence, madness gripped the soul taken, and that madness splintered the more powerful, breaking one into many. So I think that I think that you're partially right. I think that it birthed the de-ivers, the madness that was caused by the ritual not unraveling unexpectedly. I think that is how the Ivers came to be. But I think that Soul Taken and Talan are essentially the first empire. You know, quote unquote, call themselves the first empire. I think Talan well, is. Well, I thought we knew that. Right. Yes. Did we not? Yes, we did. But okay. I guess I was interpreting your comment as the ritual unraveled unexpectedly birthed the Soul Taken. Well, right. Yeah. Like this, they didn't expect him to go mad. And then. It, they did, and then split apart. So, yeah, I, I would agree that, yeah, they must not have expected the madness. They weren't counting on, I guess I took it as they weren't counting on the divers to be a thing. Correct, yeah. But the soul taken existed prior to the ritual, right? Um, I guess I don't really remember how I felt on that um, or how I interpreted that. Been a little bit this <laughs> is read this chapter my head canon is is that they they are the first empire soul taken and divers or i mean soul taken and talani mas so they existed they coexisted together before the talan decided to do or partake in this ritual all right <laughs> I, I won't i guess i i don't have anything to try and clap back at you and and try to change your mind on anything on it no worries. No worries. I'm just more or less trying to gain agreement with you. That's all. And, you know, just again, I, I think whole... we mostly agree with each other. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, I, th I think it's just really cool that we got like a nice little know how as to how the Ivers came to be. And that the soul taken are the older of the two. Gotcha. The other thing that I thought was really cool is it said that, you know, Treach recalled the Warren that they cut down on a distant continent. It had turned the Eastlands into molten stone that cooled and became something that defied sorcery. So one, I'm wondering if that Warren that they cut down has anything to do with the Jade statue that Haboric, Bowden, and Felicen ran into. And secondly, the Eastlands turning to molten stone that cooled and became something that defied sorcery. The only thing that we know that does that is Ototeril, right? Distant continent. Warren cut down, and then Ototeril all reminds me of when those three are escaping Skullcap, you know, who were basically in the Ototeril mines, right? I think that is essentially how Ototeril came to be. I took this a completely different direction than, than what you did. I, I did not think of Ototeril at all. Oh, really? Not at all. <laughs> yeah, I've to me, to me <laughs> what I, I thought it was talking about um, basically, it was a callback to the prologue where, you know, Calor wrecked his continent and they put everything into the Warren. Oh, uh, I don't think that those are related, but I mean, because it says on a distant continent, which would imply not this one. Because he's right. Yeah, because that was 
Jedi. That was Jack or Jackaraku or whatever. Yeah. That was that con which is a distant continent. Yeah. So far as we know, I think. I don't know. That was just what I thought. So it's it's interesting to hear what you were thinking because it uh, was was not something that even entered my brain. But it sounds like Treach. I mean, he's saying that he recollects the Warren that they cut down. I would imagine that the Warren had to exist in in order for it to cut down. Whereas in the prologue, they created that Warren. True. But we do, I mean, the, the thing that made me think of that is just, I mean, that, that continent was, the whole thing was fucked, right? Like, and I'm sure maybe that defies sorcery in some other way. I don't know. That's, that's just where my head went that, sure. you know, when I, when I read it, was thinking about it. Well, and the Eastlands, the Ototero mines are east of the main continent of Seven Cities, if you recall. I did not. I think he's talking about Ototero. And I think he's talking about Seven Cities, which very well could be Jakaraku. Who knows? Like, I wonder if we're saying that name right. <laughs> probably not. Um, and then it goes on to say that the Talan had sacrificed thousands of themselves to cut away the cancer that they had become. Was this what was meant when the ritual went unraveled? Is this also the reason why the Talan just slaughtered them? Like, there's so much here. And it seems like the Talan and Soul Taken ruled together and lived together in harmony. But when this immortality ritual was supposed to take place, things didn't go planned. The Soul Taken went mad, splitting into divers, And now the Soul Taken were changed in a way not prepared. They were prepared for and thus kind of like led to their destruction. So I feel like knowing the Talana Mass and how they are with the Jag Hut... I'm assuming they went on a killing spree to eradicate, maybe not Soul Taken, but Divers. I'm trying to think. Did did we ever see Tool encounter any Divers or anything? I don't think so. I don't remember. I don't think so. I'm just trying to think if he did, how did he act around them? I mean, I don't think there were any mention of Divers in, in Gardens of the Moon that I can recall. If there was, it would have been subtle because I don't think right. we really understood what Soul Taken and Divers were until Dead House Gates. Yeah. And then also when, you know, he's talking about there were a handful of survivors, Rylandris being one one of them, and Misremb, they had a falling out and clashed, clashed again on another continent. Treach had gone the furthest and found a way to control the gifts, Soul Taken and Divers both. I think that this specific line is referring to the Path of Hands, and it sounds like Treach found the Path of Hands and ascended. So I think that that's maybe why people think that he's not like a first hero or that he's not like one to pray for, I guess, or have any type of like religious falling around him is because they don't really know if he ascended or not. I don't know. But that's what I'm gathering from that little tidbit not something i thought of either so again and i didn't have like a a counterpoint of what i did think so i just it's interesting to hear your thoughts yeah but also miss remb right the bear that fucking got just taken by tremolor it just hugged into the wall basically right yeah just the sadness and recollecting his brutal death within tremolor is I was not expecting to recall that. I yes, I don't particularly remember reading that at all. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, uh, I remember reading that in Dead House Gates, but just in this this chapter, it's not sticking out. 
Gotcha. The other the other thing that um, I thought was strange uh, about the section is when Treach recollects this wolf with a single eye on some distant ridgeline. And then he's just like this strange singular memory is returning to him. But why? And for some reason, I feel like this is Tox memory or, you know, even from the perspective of the, you know, Treach encountering this wolf. But here's my confusion is, is ball Jake, does he have one or does she have one eye? Yeah. Are you sure? Pretty confident. Is it possible that at the end of this, because I feel like the end of this section recollects this, this, this line here, because now instead of it being from Treach's perspective, it's from the one-eyed wolf. So is it possible that like Treach is not necessarily talk, but ball jag, therefore like having some, seeing some type of worthiness with talk. I don't know. This part is like so interestingly confusing. <laughs> we also have this like this white wolf that was following the elder gods in the prologue. And is that ball jag or is that something else? And from what I understood, that also had a one eye. So in my mind, we've got ball jag who's got one eye. We've got talk that's got one eye. And then we have this like mysterious white wolf that like helped talk escape from the Warren of Chaos, and then we've got Treach, and somehow they're like all connected, and I'm not quite sure how to make of that. Like, I can't wrap my head around that. I guess I felt like it was Baljag that was helping. Okay. All right. I, I'm trying to remember because, I mean, yeah, it's, you know, it's, we go through this fairly slow and, you know, we read things and then I try to, you know, remember it as best I can, and then I listen to our stuff when you put it out. But I, I feel pretty confident that Baljag has one eye also. All right. I, well, I guess it'll be one of those things where, like, we'll get, you know, concisive stuff later. We'll find out later. Or somebody will correct us and be right. like, nope, or yep. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's just, it's just really interesting. The other thing that I thought was funny is just, I'm assuming, and maybe you'll disagree, but this Talon, this panther wearing Talon is Kalava. Yep, I agree. So as Kalava is talking to Treach, as he like lay there dying after she takes out the rest of the Kel hunters, you know, he's speaking inside of his mind. So I'm guessing she can hear him based on the fact that they have a fucking conversation. So is right. this like yep. the link between Talan and Soul Taken? Where else have we seen a link? Paran and Silver Fox, right? I'm a genius. I'm a fucking genius, dude. Which I think confirms some speculations I had around the two empty thrones from chapter five. I think that Soul Taken and Talon have some type of link between each other. Interesting. Uh, I'm not disagreeing with you, but I, I again, it's a, a thing that I, something I didn't put together. So it's... I, I want to see how it plays out. Well, I think that I think that Paran is like a reverse soul taken of some kind. I don't know exactly now how you become a soul taken, and it kind of seems like there's two there's two pieces of being a soul taken. There's one where you uh you you know you're not to land, but you've decided to stay in your soul taken form, and then there's 
you know, the Talan themselves can become soul taken, if that makes any sense. Well, didn't in in Dead House Gates, didn't they say, like, at least for divers, you were born that way? Like, I didn't, I don't recall it being a thing like you could just, like, choose to be or a skill you could learn. Like, you were just born with it. Now, how you choose, like, what creature you turn into, I don't know, but I thought I remembered that. Yeah, maybe. I probably it's not something that I can I can remember. I'm just, you know, again gonna have trust and faith that, you know, the the Ivers and Soul Taken will eventually get expanded upon. Um and some of these concepts are revisited in a little bit of Erickson's style, right? But it, it's just to me, how can how can a Talani Mas be soul taken if they are their own identity? If they're their like own culture, you know, like that's how I see it in my mind is that you have the soul taken who can't transform into a human being or other race. And then you've got the other races and Talani Mas or people or humans that can soul take. Oh, so you've thought that there's there's soul taken that are just like a, a race of people unto themselves. Correct. Yeah, this is what I'm interpreting it as. I have not felt that way at all. But then why would they... Or, or not interpreted it that way, I guess. I or mean, put the I, pieces together. That makes sense. I mean, I can under, I, I have my doubts about that as well. Like, But, you know, it's like the whole ritual unraveling unexpected, soul taken that went mad, splintered the more powerful, birthing the Ivers, the Empire was tearing itself apart. Is this like the ritual caused the Talani mass to like permanently change into soul taken. But then that doesn't explain the empty houses, right? Like I'm assuming the, the holds the hold of the beast and the hold of the Talani mass existed before the ritual. It's like yeah, a big know. complex. If then, if so, then what, I don't know. I'm, I guess give up. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess I've just felt like being a soul taken is more like an attribute or because um, I like rake is a soul taken, you know, right. you can turn into a dragon. Um, yeah. I, I don't know. You see what I'm talking about though, right? Like I'm not just spewing bullshit. I don't think you're spewing bullshit. I just like, I, I, I just haven't viewed things that way. And obviously we haven't like talked that deeply about it, you know, like when we've been texting and stuff. So it's, I don't want to say like, it's a surprise or anything or, but I just, I didn't know that was how you felt. I mean, then again, like it wasn't something I thought about either. I didn't feel like that until I read this fucking section, you know, where they, ex where he's expanding on a little bit of the origin of soul taken of the Ivers. The, the Ivers part, I totally understand. Got it. Because of the madness, because of the ritual unraveling, Thus birth the Ivers. Cool. Done. Finito. But do soul-taken beasts exist without the attribute to turn back into whatever they formerly were? I guess I don't know. I didn't think so, but maybe that is the case. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. All right. Um, like, you know, people who have soul-taken and then just decided to not become themselves again, thus losing their humanitarian side and that is essentially like so many of people did that that now there are a race of animals that can't turn back 
so to speak. I guess I just kind of thought maybe they liked being whatever animal they were better. Yeah. You know, it's better than being a human or whatever, bargast, you know, whatever other race you are. Yeah. I don't know. I just, you know, my next point is, is that, I mean, I mean, I can understand the madness caused by the soul taken during the ritual. Like, it sounds like to me, it went ritual didn't go as planned, thus causing soul taken to be mad, which they weren't prior. So now the amass must eradicate them is kind of where my head is going based on this section. And is it simply just the madness or is there some other type of cataclysmic event, you know, and treat himself as like, I don't blame you guys. You were just doing what was necessary. And that he like the wounds were mended, which I think is just his way of saying, like, I forgive you, but I, I don't, I'm still baffled as to what that could be. <laughs> we'll have to read on and find out. Yeah, maybe. for sure. Um, but when Kalava is saying that she couldn't offer Treach any certainty, but she has felt the stirrings of an elder god, and then she said, perhaps the most ancient one of all, I'm like, okay, you think this is referring to Cruel? I think it is. But is he the most ancient? Maybe. We don't really know much of his origins, but it seems that on top of Silver Fox and her inception, he's got many schemes going on. Do you think that he's influencing Paran too? Or do you think Paran is like the opposing force? Is this the Azath's way of opposing Cruel's plan? Or even like going along with it? Are the Azath elder gods? And even if they are gods, joining together to take down the crippled god? Is this all just some temporary truce like Brood and Dujek? You know, like the elder gods and the Azath seem to be like in my mind a little bit of opposing forces are they recognizing the threat that the crippled god is offering so now they're like joining together to kind of force these players to do what they need to do maybe uh, like almost like the enemy of my enemy is my friend type thing like they're just banding together for i guess the greater good or the greater evil whichever way you want to look at it right because the Azath, from what I remember from Deadhouse Gates, is that they take things that are powerful so that they no longer are in play, right? And the Elder Gods died because they were, how did they put it in other sections? Because they were cruel. I guess I'm not trying to think back. I'm not remembering <laughs> right now. I don't know. It's just also interesting, which is why I love this little section in here. Um but, you know, she does wonder why, and she believes that it's probably because it's an answer to a really grave threat. And Kalava believes that there is a game playing out and that it will probably take some time. And I get the feeling that this was like a present memory, like Treach is wandering around. But I think Tak is just reliving a memory of Treach or memories of Treach. I can imagine that the tiger was killed by these Kachain Chamal, and instead of going to Hood's Gate, he's just been in suspension until Tak was supposed to have this vision, et cetera, et cetera. I, I, I'm not sure if it was like, is Tak remembering something? At the same time, it seems like it's happening in the present as well. I guess I thought that it was kind of, it was almost Tak just missed it. They were almost like nearby to it where it happened. That's kind of how I felt. Interesting. 
Yeah, I guess I I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm like 95% sure this is happening in the present based on what happens in this next section. But so I'm just going to go with that. Y'all can ignore that comment cuz I I feel like that was more of something I was curious about while I was summarizing, but you know, have re- reread the chapter at least twice since then cuz I wasn't allowed to move forward, so I just kept reading the chapter. <laughs> well, yeah, there was. Yeah, it was, it's been a month ish. So, but yeah, I mean, darkness, like when Treach finally dies, my guess is that uh, either one of two scenarios has happened. Treach is now the ball jag. If, if she does have one eye, I don't know if she does. I know that there was a section where in the previous section that you read, it says that ball jag opened one eye, but that doesn't mean that she has one eye. True. It could simply just mean that she opened one eye while she was resting, you know? Right. So, but yeah, I either think that Treach is, you know, uh, is talk or ball jag. If this isn't, if this is present, it can't be ball jag because she was already awoken when cruel put a worthy soul in her, if that makes sense. So you don't think that could happen once she's awake? No, because based on Cruel's promise, he says that he would gift her with a worthy soul. And being that she's been roaming around for all these years, you know, I think it's just a timing thing, right? Like, I'm sure Cruel would have loved to have given her a worthy soul, but one came up far before she, before he was ready for it, I guess. Gotcha. I can... I can see that. Like you said, a timing thing. Yeah. And then the last, the ending, uh, again, I think it's just a perspective from Baljag looking across at the massive soul taken tiger. So I think that it's like the white wolf's perspective of seeing Treach like kill or eat a dead ragnag. So yeah, I. it's like a mixture of like, Treach's memories that Tak is seeing and the present. And it's like weirdly intermixed with each other. And I'm sure that's on purpose. But yeah, that was just, those were all my thoughts on that section in combination with the previous one. <laughs> well, you certainly had a deep dive there. Yes, yes, I did. It was good. I liked it. Thanks. A lot of different things, different perspectives. Like, like I said, things that uh, didn't even cross my mind. All right. Well, I guess we'll take it. But yeah, I'm it just these two sections definitely have me wondering and I'm going to be looking out with a keen eye. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, I'm ready to move on. If you are. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll continue on here. A gloved hand slapped talk hard in the face. It was Senu, and he said it was an odd time to fall asleep. Now awake, talk could smell meat cooking. As he sat up, he thought to himself that he didn't want any more visions. He found Tool and Baljag in the same position as he had last seen them both, facing northwest, and he thought he knew why. Tok said she wasn't far off and she was coming fast. Tool asked what he had seen and where his journey had taken him. Tok said he was hungry, hungry enough to eat the animal raw. As for what he had seen, he was a witness to the death of Treach, or Trake as he is known in this part of the world. Where? North of their current location. Not terribly far off. And he didn't know why. 
Tool was silent for a moment before speaking, saying, The men here, heart of memory. Baljag had risen up along with her hackles. The panther talk knew was coming had arrived, and she was big, nearly looking talk in the eye. She assumed her natural form of a small woman and greeted her brother, Tool. He returned her greeting, and she said he had not aged well. He replied that she had. She commented on Baljag being his mortal companion. Tool said Baljag was just as mortal as she was. Kalava said it was predictably cautious of her, of her kind and held out her hand, saying she was flesh and blood just as it was. The wolf leaned a shoulder into Kalava, who buried her face in the fur, saying it was un an unexpected gift. Tok said it was more than that. He thought to himself that this is what the Imus had looked like, would look like if they had refused the powers of the ritual. Kalava said she saw him looking out from Treach's eyes. He interrupted her before she could finish, asking if, if it was from both eyes. She said no, only one. The one he no lo longer had, and that she wants to know what the Elder God has planned for them. Tok said he didn't know. He didn't remember meeting him at all. Kalava asked her brother who this man was. Tool said he had named him Ural Fail. She asked if, if he had given him weapons of stone. Tool said he had, though it was unintentional. Kalava was about to suggest something, and Tool broke in, saying he serves no god. Her eyes flashed as she asked him if she did. Who would try and manipulate a bone caster and the first sword? He would risk their wrath. Tool had enough. He said she and him were not the same. They had not shared the same journey. He is on his way to the second gathering. She sneered and asked if he thought she didn't hear the summons. Tool asked if she knew who had summoned them. She said she didn't, nor did she care as she would not be attending. Tool wanted to know why she was here. She told him that was her business. Tok had a realization that he knew was not his, but an elder god's. He heard in his mind that she seeks to right an old wrong and that they would cross paths again, though it was, uh, though it was of little consequence. It was the final meeting the elder god was concerned with and likely years away. However, the children of the Panion are suffering and he must find a way to release them. So the, so the Elder God, knowing that he would not be forgiven, must send him to the seer. Tok forced a question in his mind. Why must he release them? The God said it was an odd question to be asked, but the reason is compassion. There are unimaginable gifts in such efforts, and a man who dreams has shown him this. He would soon see for himself. The Elder God left him, and without realizing it, Tok spoke up, saying compassion. Tool said his sister knew nothing of compassion. Tok looked at Tool, realizing he couldn't remember what he was saying before the Elder God visited him. Gilava told her brother that all the things that all things change and that she was leaving. Whoever the summoner was didn't care if she was there or not, and her crimes would not be undone by attending, and that lastly, whatever Tool thinks the second gathering will be, it will probably not be as he expects. Tool continued to speak, saying he had only said they do not travel step in step with each other. He was angry with her, but it was an old anger. Kalava agreed, saying it was old, but he was nonetheless correct. They had never walked in step with each other, and the past ever haunts them. Perhaps one day they would mend the hurt between them. This meeting had given her hope. She gave Baljag a pet on the head and turned away. Tool dropped to his knees, head hung low. 
Tuck could not imagine tears coming from a corpse, yet he must have been close. Tuck told him there was untruth in his words. Swords were drawn and he saw Senu and Thrul coming their way. Tool put out a hand and told the Segula to put their swords away, and that he was immune to their insults, even if they came from one he considered a friend. Tuck said it wasn't an insult, but rather an observation. Tuck asked what it was called, the breaking of blood ties. He put a hand on his shoulder and said it was clear to him that the breaking failed for what it was worth. Tool looked up at Tuck. Tuck thought to himself that he looks into a skull and sees nothing. Tool looks out, and what does he see? He held out his hand for Tool, who took it much to Tuck's surprise. He helped him up and was surprised at the effort it took. Senu said it was time to eat. Tuck wondered what he did to earn all this between Tool and, the, and seemingly the respect from the Segula. Tool said he had only truly known two mortal humans and both had underestimated their abilities, one fatally sole. So, Tool said he would tell them the tale of Adjunct Lorne. Tuck anticipated a moral to the story. Tool said there was, and Tuck told him he only expected to toss bones with the two Segula. Interesting. Sorry, guys, I kind of a little tongue-tied here today. Yeah, it's earlier than we should be recording, typically. Yeah. Uh, I can only imagine the estrangeness that Tool feels as Kalava just enters their camp. Yeah, uh, again, they're not something I thought of until you just started talking about it. But yeah, that that is an interesting thought because yeah, she's still like human and he's effectively a rotting corpse, right? Like to see your sister, how you were or could be. Um, yeah, that probably stings a little bit. Well, and not to mention that it kind of sounds like Kalava has aged, right? Like, she probably looks like an older woman. Yeah, but I don't get the sense that, that she looks like she's elderly, though. Right, yeah. But I'm just but saying. But yeah, it's not like she looks like a kid or whatever he, you know, remembered her looking like. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, it's just one of those things where, like, obviously the Talan had a very close kinship with the Talan Eye, or just the Eye Wolves, and... You know, I'm definitely get, kind of getting Ball Jag is put on a, like a little bit of a pedestal here, and I kind of just want to know more about that. Well, yeah, I mean, I I feel like we learned a little bit, you know, that it's it sounds like basically they domesticated them, right, and maybe became reliant on them for like hunting partners. Right. Yeah. You know, but also it's one of those things where she probably feels terrible for them because it kind of sounds like ball jag is the last of their kind not because they were they went extinct but because all of her kin well not kin but all of ball jags other eye were caught up in the ritual and now they are undead as well it's just weird to think about that like she's the survivor she's the last known mortal a or i because the Talan selfishly made them go through the ritual, you know? Right. Yeah. As far as uh, my thoughts on this section, I don't remember Tool accidentally giving talk. Oh, it's the arrows, isn't it? Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Answers that question. He taught him how to make them. So, it, yeah. Okay. I was like thinking hard about that. Like, what the fuck did he give him and when? Just dawned on me there. <laughs> So thank you for uh, your confirmation. No worries. Anytime. So it, when talks 
having this, I guess, conversation in his mind with the elder God and, and says he's got to send him to the seer. Uh, the first time I don't, I didn't remember reading that the first time. So it was kind of when I reread it that I caught that, but you know, he's, he says he's got to release them. So what do you think that is? Do you think like by release, he means death or just actually like the physical removal of the domain? I mean, I kind of feel like it's talking about the children of the dead seed. I don't know how you felt about it. I think that the Panion, and based on, you know, just this small tidbit, as well as some stuff in the next section, that it kind of seems to me that the followers of the Panion domain were forced to do it. So I think that, or they were bound to do it. And so therefore taking out the seer will release them from their binds in some way. And I think that's why Tak asks why it, it is that they must release him and Karul says compassion because I mean like think about it you know if you've got a fallen elder god right who's pretty much been forgotten what do you do to be remembered probably something like this. drastic right like it kind of seems like Karul again based on many elements in this chapter is recruiting it sounds like he is making a stand and whether the you know younger gods or the newer gods or whatever you want to call them follow suit or not, it Karul doesn't care. You know, he's just like, I have to do I have to do what's right. And it kind of it, it, it just it feels like it goes back to the crippled god and the damage that we know he's causing so far. So okay. Well, let's say somehow they succeed in killing the seer then. Is that really like a release? Because what I mean, I can't imagine. Like, I imagine like two things. All these people are probably like brainwashed, uh, and somebody else probably just you know takes the seer's place. Or okay, the seer's dead, but how do you like reassimilate all these people? Like, or uh, <laughs> they don't seemingly appear not to know how to do anything else now, but just terrible cruelty i mean i would imagine that by giving them their lives back right and potentially a, a you know a, a god that is no longer remembered you know people to worship worship him so he comes back into the fold i just I, I i don't see how showing these people compassion is going to stop them from being like an inhuman horde, basically, I guess. Like they're just going to start being farmers instead of <laughs> brutal killers or something. You know, like it, that's hard for me to comprehend. I mean, I would imagine that, you know, it may not fall into Cruel's hands, but maybe, you know, Capistan and its rulers and even Brood and the, the Malazan Empire, instead of having this renegade Tenescrawi running all over the place unmanned, they'd be all like, hey, you need to stop what you're doing. Here's here's an acre of land and a house to live in. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I don't know how to answer that question, but I would imagine that I they just, could try to do something. After I just don't see that working. I, like, I agree with you. Like, that would be a good idea, but I, just, I don't see it working because I think they're just... Effectively, I just imagine them as like mindless killers because we've been told like, okay, well, they've been forced into doing these terrible things just to survive now because they're not being fed. They're not being armed. All they know, all they know is violence now, right? Like, yeah, if, if that's like a hard thing to just like drop and be like, okay, I'm going to live a peaceful life now. 
as nice as that would be, but I, I don't I don't know how you just flip that switch off for a massive number of people, however many they are. I don't know. And maybe that's um, the flaws in Karul's plan, but I mean, he's taking action to do something about it. So. Yeah, yeah, seemingly, anyways. Um, you know, this compassion, you know, is not something that we see very much in this series, but if, whenever we do, it, it does seem to be a big deal. So I will be interested to see how that plays out. I'm sure it'll be something that clearly I can't comprehend foreseeing right now. Yeah, it, it it's definitely a, a darker theme and not dark as in like, oh my God, it's dark humor, dark comedy or whatever. It's just like something that doesn't see a lot of light. You don't really see yeah. those. But they're there. They're always kind of like in the background, though. Yeah. But also, you know, if this is something where, you know, the Elder Gods have always been seen as not compassionate, maybe this is Cruel's way of, like, going against the grain of his curse to try to get more worshippers or whatever the case may be, you know? Very well could be. You know, this line where there are, it says there are are unimaginable gifts in such efforts and a man who dreams has shown him this and he would soon see for himself i don't know <laughs> it doesn't leave me with the real good feeling for whatever reason it just seems ominous and then i'm thinking about this and like who is this man who dreams the only one i can think of is is do you think it's krupp showing him dreams i do yeah i think krupp is having dreams of the panian's followers being saved I, I don't think it's going to happen. <laughs> I, I mean, because like things just feel pretty like straightforward, right? Like, you know, we've got the good guys and the bad guys. Like it feels pretty cut and dry so far. I don't know if that'll change or not. You know, the Panion, bad guys, everybody else, good guys. Maybe. I think that's to be debated, but eh, I guess I don't have any like super stuck to religion or like opinions on them accomplishing this or not gotcha i'm just kind of going with the flow here <laughs> hey it's all we can do right i didn't summarize things too in depth here but tool and his i don't know if you want to call it like a spat with his sister but we see you know he's, he's pretty cold to his sister and then you know after she leaves she drops to his knees and then we we kind of see some emotion he was holding back but it's pretty tough to see him to struggle to talk to her yeah i mean wouldn't you i i mean they never they don't i don't get the sense that they've ever really had the same morals and ideas i kind of feel like tool is a little bit of a rule follower whereas kalava is like yeah fuck that so <laughs> I like the way I like that, you know, and it's just, it's interesting because like in the part where the elder God is talking or speaking to talk, he says that they're to, or she seeks to right an old wrong and that their paths would cross again. I think it's interesting because we heard that from Baljag too, right? That word redress or whatever word it was that yeah. you here. No, you're, yeah, you're right. Yeah. So, I mean, is this, I mean, it seems that Kalava and Baljag have something in common. And I think that Baljag is looking to maybe correct the wrong of being the only one left. So I think that her motivations would be along the lines of undoing, you know, the, the other eye partaking in the ritual 
And I think that Kalava is potentially trying to right the wrong of putting the two Jaghut children into the rent at Morn. I, I 100% agree with that. Is it possible that maybe what's happening here is that the crippled god is using the matron and the Kachain Chamal to do his bidding? Is kind of maybe where I'm where my mind is going, I guess, with all this stuff. I don't know what's like, I wonder. I don't know. I I kind of feel like the crippled god, you know, going after Burn and everything. I kind of feel like that's probably not going to be fully resolved in this book. So I don't know. I mean, he could be using, you know, like you said. I don't I'm not sure. I mean, I think that like if I was a crippled god, right? I wouldn't go at things from one angle, right? I would go at them from many angles, you know? Keep things interesting. Keep things Sure distracted and there's even another part in the, in this next section which we could talk about when we get there where there's an example of this gotta keep them on their toes keep them guessing right but yeah it's just the tools emotions right like you can't i mean he's an undead creature but yet he clearly still has emotions especially in this very difficult time where he's like face to face with his sister and not only are there physical differences but He's reminded of the rage that he had in the past, as well as just some estrangeness, you know? It's it's just an interesting dynamic, and it was just really, it was well done. You know, though, I, I don't know that we touched on this, but again, just kind of thinking about it now, are we told how long it's been since Tool's seen his sister? I don't think so. It could be fucking forever ago, like... And this, this is the first time in, you know, thousands of years that he's seen her. Um, right. So that might be hard to reconcile, I suppose. Um, but I guess as far as my last point, Tuck is thinking about, well, he looks into the skull and sees nothing, but Tool, you know, what looking out, what does is, what is Tool see? And I think it's just perspective, but I, I think Tool sees a friend in Tuck. I think so, too. But I also think it serves as a double meaning, right? Like, talk sees nothing, but you can only imagine that Tool is seeing everything a way that a human would. Someone who is not undead. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. So, but yeah, really interesting section. I didn't really, I wasn't expecting Kalava. I wasn't ex- expecting the range of emotions. Um, you know, I can't help but feel bad for Tool here, you know, and just everything that's happening is just, such a a lot of information that i i can't decipher yet <laughs> hopefully we'll be able to soon right yes but if you're ready to continue on i am ready for you as well sir all right no one in callows was spared she had seen the pyres on her approach from the inland road and judged the slaughter to be around thirty thousand. garath sprinted ahead slipping beneath the arch of the gate she followed at a slower pace the city had been beautiful once Leaves crackled under her foot as Lady Envy walked down the Central Avenue. A trader city, a merchant's paradise, masts of countless ship were visible in the harbor ahead. Ten days, no more, since the slaughter. She could smell Hood's breath, a sigh of unexpected bounty, a faint ripple of unease as to what it signified. Inside her head, she says to herself that Hood is troubled, and this does not bode well. Garath led her with precision to an ancient, almost forgotten alleyway, into a small house, sagging, a sagging 
Into a small sagging house, they went. Within one of the rooms, there was a reed mat on the floor. Lady Envy kicked it aside and thought to herself that the owners had no idea what lay beneath their home. She unveiled her warren, passed her hand over the floorboards, and watched as the floorboards dissolved into dust, leaving a circular hole. Garath went to the edge and then dropped out of sight. Lady Envy could hear the click of his paws distantly below. There were no stairs, so she had to float down using her warren. With vision enhanced, she looked around and sniffed. The temple was all of this one chamber. There was no raised altar stone, but for this particular ascendant, she knew that the cuts in the stone floor served that purpose. Back in the days of blood. She said out loud that she can imagine why this place awakened you, her eyes staring at Garath, who was on the verge of sleeping. She continued on saying that all, that all blood dripping down upon this altar... Her nose wrinkled. Garath's eyes closed and then twitched. Inside her head, she heard Cruel's welcome. Cruel welcome her. Envy says to Cruel that his summons to her were more distraught than usual. She asked if this was concerning the matron and her undead hunters. Then this was a waste of her time, as she was well aware of their intended result. He responds to her by saying that the crippled and chained he may be, but this god isn't so obvious. His game is a master's sleight of hand. Nothing is as he would have them believe, and his use of unwitting servants is as brutal as how he treats his enemies. He started to state an example of the Panion Seer, but instead talks about the inhuman killers that came from the sea and brought destruction onto Kalos. They were ever seeking, and now they browse the oceans. Lady Envy asks what they were seeking and if the seafaring murderers had a name. Karul said to her that one enemy at a time, and she must be patient. Envy crossed her arms and stated that Karul was the one who sought her out. Even though they haven't spoken in a long time, or for that matter, ever see each other again. While the memories are vague, she recalled that they weren't companions, nor friends, nor ally. But here the Elder God has come, and she has gathered up his own unwitting servants. She tells him of the amount of energy those three Segula had to take or that required to hold them in check. Cruel, with recognition of the Segula, asked where the third one was. She told him where the third one was, and then explained to Cruel that Segula cannot be controlled. She tells him that Mach will challenge Tool, and that the, the destruction of one another, of one or the other, will be ill-suited for Cruel's plans. She heard Cruel's laughter inside of her head. The Elder God explained that not before Mach and his brothers had carved their way into the Panion Seer's throne room, besides Tool is more subtle in thought than you can imagine, and to let them battle, if Mach so chooses. Cruel suspects that Mach will surprise the Lady Envy with his constraint. She questioned this, but then asked Cruel if she was surprised by the Segula first, sending someone ranked so high in this punitive army. Cruel admits that no, he had expected three to four hundred eleventh level initiates. That would have been sufficient enough to draw half of the seer's forces away from the approaching Malazans. With the second missing and Mach's growing prowess, no doubt the first had his reasons. She said that she had one final question. Why was she doing all these favors anyway? Cruel calls her petulant and explains that the last time the need arose, she had turned her back. He explains that even chained, the crippled god will not rest. He has turned his endless and tormenting pain into strength. 
fuel for his rage and his hunger for vengeance. Lady Envy says that this is just an excuse, and what he really craves is power. Cruel responded and said it was a possibility, but then went on to tell Lady Envy that she defied the summonings of the chaining, but this time he will not tolerate it a second time. Sneering, she asked if, if he was her master. Visions cut her off, flooding her mind, darkness, then chaos, wild, unfocused power, a universe devoid of control, entities flung through the maelstrom, lost, terrified by the birth of light, a sudden sharpening, a sudden imposition of order, the heart from which blood flowed in even steady streams, twin chambers to that heart, Karald Ghislaine, the Warren of Mother Dark, and Starvalad Demolane, the Warren of Dragons. The blood, which is the power, is sweeping through the veins, branching out to all existence. And the thought that came to her stole the warmth from her flesh. Flesh. She thought to herself that those veins, those arteries, they are Warrens. She asked him who created this. Karula said that she had her answer, and he would be damned to allow her to to defy his summons a second time. By light's wild mane, her power feeds on that blood, and he will have her obedience this time. Lady Envy staggered another step as the visions faded, her heart pounding in her chest. She asked who else knew the truth. Curl shrugs, shrugs and lists off Rake, Draconis, Osric, and a handful of others, and finally Lady Envy herself. Cruel apologizes as he doesn't mean to come off as a tyrant. He tells her she can do as she pleases, along with everyone else. He admits that this crippled god from a foreign realm had the Elder Gods scared. A chill ran through her as his words sank in. After a moment, Cruel continued and said that they had lost too many allies in our foolishness, namely, Desem Altor. When, he when Hood took his daughter at the chaining, Envy cuts in and asks if she's the reason to blame for Desem Alter's loss. Cruel said that only Hood alone knew that answer. Desem, his champion, had grown to rival Hood's power. Cruel said that there was little value in those questions, beyond the obvious lesson that inaction is a deadly choice. He gives her a few examples of the consequences of Desem's fall. Lady Envy simply asks what he wants of her. He said that there was a need to show her the vastness of the threat. The Panion Domen is not but a fraction of that. But yet, she must lead his chosen into the Domen's heart. She asked if she was to match her powers with theirs. Cruel said that she could take this route, but unwise. He says that he trusts her judgment, and that she may decide to cut the knot or loosen, and free all that has been bound for 3,000 years. Lady Envy says that she will play it as it comes. She asks if she was free to leave, and she longed to get back to the others, especially that Tak the Younger. Cruel told her to take great care of him, as the scarred and flawed are what the crippled god seeks in his servants. He said that there was something else to talk, something wild, but they would have to wait its awakening before understanding what it means. He told her one last thing before she left. Cruel warned her that she was approaching Doman territory, and told her not to use her warren, she asked him why. He responded and said that his blood is poisoned within the domain, and while she can fight against it, Tak cannot. Garath awoke, rose and stretched. Cruel was gone. Lady Envy gasped and said aloud to herself, 
poisoned by the abyss. I need a bath. She asked Garath if she will wake the third with a kiss. The dog glanced over at her. She asked how the Segula would count lips. Would that make him the fourth or the fifth? She said to Garath that they should go find out. I think that was my other favorite section. Yeah. An interesting exchange for sure. Yes. I will start off because I have so many of these damn things. Uh, the level of detail describing the city as Lady Envy enters was just simply amazing. Like, it was just absolutely awesome. Just walking down the track, seeing the pyres on the road, the leaves, the desecrated house, the harbors in the ship. Like, you just really get a good sense of, like, how much of a ghost town it is. Yeah, the blood in the gutters, like, yep. you know, it's kind of dried but imagine it's like th thick paint almost right exactly it's funny because like she has a thought about you know that hood is troubled and this does not bode well because it was kind of like i would imagine to the god of death something that wasn't anticipated or expected maybe even planned right and i just i'm wondering what this has to do with the crippled god uh maybe siphoning off souls from hood or something i don't know maybe i mean i don't know i think he, i mean i think these souls are still going to hood's gate i just don't think that he was expecting it if that makes any damn sense yeah i don't know i mean i guess i feel i've always kind of felt like i mean i don't know i i don't i don't know how to explain it like he does does hood not want you know the bodies coming through his gate like what happens if everybody's dead then there's nobody else to come through i guess i i don't know so yeah maybe he wasn't expecting it but yeah i guess hard i don't know why it makes him nervous i guess I, I, yeah yeah i'm i'm not sure what's going on with hood there and i know that we get like a little bit of a backstory with the see him altor you know it kind of sounds like from what i remember he was the knight of hood he was the knight of high house hood or high house death and then my guess is that Hood took his daughter and he was like, fuck, fuck you, you know? And, you know, yeah, I, I guess hard to say, but we'll it read must be one of the We probably don't have enough information yet. No, not at all. Um, the other thing that I thought was really cool is it says back in the days of blood as, as she's kind of talking about the cuts in the stone floor that I would assume served as like some type of trap for the blood um my guess is that this is how the elder gods were worshipped was like sacrificially right and yeah i had that thought also but here's a weird thought so if Kaller caused cruel to be forgotten and the way he was praised was with blood sacrifices do you think it's possible that these other gods like the newer gods were created because of this as like a consequence and also the reason why holds don't exist i just strange thought but i'm not even sure i'm thinking about it correctly but is it possible that because they no longer worshiped gods with blood this is how like the newer gods came about and how the old holds were forgotten maybe i don't i, I don't know because i kind of get the feel of like lost knowledge you know kind of like in the wheel of time with the eyes to die and you know the world before the breaking how there was all this like technology and all this knowledge and you know even even forming weaves that have long been forgotten i kind of get that type of feel with the holds is that it's just like forgotten knowledge and i think that's kind of another reason why paran is the master of the deck is 
to kind of bring back this knowledge to be used against the crippled God. I don't think I have anything to add, sir. One thing that I thought was cool is after after that like scene where she like talks about the altar and the blood and how she can see why he awoke is because of all of the blood from Callow's like like seeping down. She, it it says that her nose wrinkled. I think it's odd that there is an emphasis on her senses. Like I know Erickson likes to play with senses and describing them. It makes me think is La- is Lady Envy a soul taken as well, or does she just have the ability to like smell real good? Well, I don't know. I mean, it's been ten days, right? Ish, and there's thirty thousand dead bodies. Maybe probably smells like probably smells like shit. But also, like, corpses. <laughs> We see her take a bath a lot. Like, there's a, a big emphasis on her taking a bath. So maybe she just, like, smells herself all the time and, like, doesn't like the way she smells. I kind of imagine that was just, like, a status thing. Like, not not everybody can just take a bath. Maybe. You know, they, they don't have a, a tub. Or if you do, I mean, I don't know. I guess if you have water, you can heat it up with a fire, but that takes time. I don't know. I, th- I guess that's how I felt. Maybe your, Maybe yours is right. It makes me think that she's got the ability to soul shift is all is all I was really going with that comment. Whether that comes true or not, I don't really care, but it would be cool. <laughs> we'll keep reading. The other thing is, did you get the sense that Garath, Karul was speaking through Garath? I did not. I get the sense that, well, because it says that Garath's eyes closed and then twitched. And then after that, inside of her head, Karul is like welcoming her. So I, I guess I I didn't pick up on that. I I'm not like against the idea of it. I just didn't think about it. Which makes me think that like Garath and Lady Envy are linked in some way, shape, or form. So I don't it know. It could be kind of like how Kalava was able to talk to Treach inside of his mind. You know, right? Cruel yeah, is something similar. Is is just talking through Garath, but inside of his mind. I don't know. I'm sure there's many possibilities there, but I was just curious as to what you thought. <laughs> well, I did not think the same as you, which <laughs> should not be too terribly surprising. <laughs> well, um, when they're talking about the matron and her un- undead hunters, like the Kel hunters, she's basically saying like, hey, you know what? This is a waste of time because I already know about that. And I think it's just funny that, but like, what do we know about it? Like we, the readers, I don't really think it's really much more than that outside of like a few subtle hints you know the matron and her and and the, you know the chain chamal we know that they exist but we don't really have any answers yet but it kind of sounds like lady envy does know that maybe because she's controlling them oh yeah oh yeah i forgot about your theory there hmm. Hmm. i mean yeah. I think or maybe not theory, but i think it's a small one i'm not gonna you know I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to live and die by it by any means. It's just a, an abstract thought or of a possibility. Fair enough. What do you like to say? Two ships passing in the night? That, that yep. was my thought. Don't know if that really applies there. but Right. I also thought it was really cool how we get like a history of like from Lady Envy's perspective on Cruel. And I thought it was interesting because it doesn't really seem like Lady Envy and Cruel were friends or even companions. But maybe just acquaintances, like they just knew each other. And doesn't seem like she cares much for him. And she makes a comment about the elder gods being gone, which included her father. So I think that there's some some disdain there. 
Like, she clearly doesn't agree with a lot of the things that maybe the Elder Gods projected back in the day. So I just thought it was sure. cool, like, history, sn- like, snippet. Just expands on just, like, the amount of time they've been alive around. Right, yeah. You know, it doesn't seem like they've had a good relationship in the past or even a relationship. So it was kind of nice to see that. So it kind of even makes me think, like, why is she really doing all this for him? It seemed like they got along okay in the prologue, but, I mean, there's a lot of time after that they could have had a falling out. Lady Envy wasn't in the prologue. Who the fuck am I thinking? Uh, am I thinking? Sister of the Cold Knights. Uh, I don't know why I continual, continually mix that up in my head. Yeah. It's all good. Um, one of the other things that I had was when, you know, the rules just like, hey, like you turned your back when she asks, like, why the fuck am I doing this for you? And I didn't summarize it, but Cruel says that even though she wasn't at the chaining, but at the cost, her presence would have diminished. So basically, I'm just wondering if this was just the strength of players in her stead were not enough or insufficient. Or if something took place that her presence would have avoided. It definitely seems that she was supposed to be at the chaining, which potentially explains some of the falling out with like Brood and Rake. But yeah, I'm just curious as to see what that would have been, you know? Yeah, because I get this, I kind of get the sense that, you know, like at the chaining, they're everybody, you know, whoever organized it, they're like, hey, yep, um, we're doing this. You should probably be here. Not really optional. And she's just kind of like, eh, fuck it. Maybe I'll be there. Um, right. Yeah, I think she probably should have been there. But maybe it has something to do with Hood, right? Like, is it possible that Hood was, like, expecting Lady Envy and because she wasn't there, he took Deseem's daughter? Are those related or are they not related? I don't know. I definitely think that that's part of the reason why Deseem's daughter was taken. I think that those two things are linked for whatever reason. Only because she asks Cruel, you know, am I the reason why Hood's daughter was taken? Taken. Tooken. I like Tooken better. <laughs> makes no sense. Makes no sense. Yeah, I don't know. It's I don't know how to answer some of the stuff. Yeah. I'm sorry. A lot of mystery. And again, I mean, it's part of the reason why I really like this, this chapter. But I'm kind of getting a, a different sense to Cruel here. Like in the first book. He seemed like a soft and gentle, like even nurturing, unless I may be remembering that wrong, but he seems just like very demanding and controlling here, especially when he's talking about like, hey, you defy the summonings of the chaining, but this time I will not tolerate it, you know? Yeah, he seems uh, quite a bit more stern. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like even, you know, cutting her off and then giving her this like glorious, like confusing as fuck vision right and if i'm following that vision correctly there's two chambers to the heart so the heart houses the two houses right dark and dragon the blood flowing is the power and the arteries and veins are the warrens themselves did the elder gods create these two houses she is the daughter of draconis so that means cruel is her uncle right if cruel and draconis were indeed brothers sure I think so. I think I had a little bit different interpretation when I read this because I felt like, and, or maybe it's just further on in in this chapter. I don't remember, or if it was just this specific part. But I, like, I I remember reading and feeling that cruel was like the like he was 
the Warrens, I guess. Right. I'm not sure how to word that. Well, I think um, that like what this is insinuating is that Cruel is kind of the creator of creation, right? Like I feel like he's he's the top dog is kind of the feeling that I'm getting. Cause like who else, who else would provide all this? Like he is the source of magic. Right. And I can understand why he's fearful of the crippled God, because from what I understand from, you know, Brood and Rake's conversation in chapter five is that if the crippled God is able to infect burn or take out burn, then he essentially has a way into the Warrens, which are cruel. I think so. I mean, it makes sense. So why not go after the top dog, right? Because then everything else underneath it is obliterated. Magic ceased to exist. Like, cruel, I think, at this point, what this vision is saying is he is equal to magic. He's the one that, like, started it all. I think you definitely worded things better than what I <laughs> did a few moments ago. But I, th- I think we're kind of thinking the same things. Yeah. Here's another one to throw you uh, for a whirlwind. So it nice. said uh, that Cruel said that she had her answer and he would be damned to allow her to defer her summons a second time by wild or light's wild mane. Her power feeds on that blood and he will have her obedience this time. So I'm like, light's wild mane. What? So we get this whole like Mother Dark, Warren of Dragons, half of a heart thing, right? Like that seems to make sense to you. Half of his heart is Starverlad Damalane and the other half is Karald Galane. Yeah, sure. Dragons, from what I recall, have manes. Some of them do. Is it possible that the Warren of Dragons are actually light? Which then would have a light dark as the two halves of the heart, which sounds better than dark and dragons. I don't know. What do you think? Also, uh, the cruel, like the Azath for house dark. Oh, sorry. Is cruel the Azath for these houses? It kind of makes it seem like he is the Warren, which we discussed. His blood is the power, the magic, right? For whatever reason, it reminds me of what was described while traveling inside of Tremolar. Interesting. So I think that, you know, you've got House Dark, and then you've got the House of the Dragons, but you say Light's Wild Main. I think that dragons are like the light and the dark. Not and the dark, but like coincide with High House Dark. Or do you think there's like a dragon that's named Light or something? That is also a possibility. Wild Main? Right. I mean, yeah, that's just where my mind went. I thought it was cool. It is cool. Um, I not. I wouldn't have even. I don't. I don't have half the thoughts you have, Justin. So I like hearing all your your thoughts. My crazy antics, my wild left field shit. Um, it's fun. Anyway, I think it's funny that you know it. Not a lot of people apparently know about what Lady Envy was gifted in a vision here, right? You know, he cruel names off a couple of them and seems to be like nonchalant about it oh it's just rake draconis osiric and you know a handful of others and now you right and i'm just we know that rake and draconis are from high house dark right or potentially house dragon and does that mean that osiric is also high house dark or a dragon potentially i feel like it's just a small clue into who he might be I wonder if we'll actually run into him at some point. Might be down the line, but I think I think we will. So 
Uh, later on, when Cruel is talking about, you know, Decem Altor, Cruel inserts Decembre here. And I know that Decembre is also like an ascendant. But are they the same thing? Because there's a subtle shifting in how it's spelled. So, I mean, and this is something that I've always kind of been curious about, but are Decem and Decembre the same thing? Are they the same person? I don't know. I have not thought about it. All right. Well, here's where we get back to our one of our previous conversations in the last section is that uh, it, it sounds like Cruel is trying to free or loosen the knot that has been bound for 3,000 years. So I think that, again, Cruel knows what the Crippled God is doing, and uh, it sounds like the Crippled God has bound its servants against their will, so to speak. So what, I guess, where does that go then? Well, I think that it it's one of those things where, like, that's where cruel kind of talking to talk you know as like a thought in talk's head where he's talking about compassion i think that again there's a there's a higher motivation here and it's just maybe gotten so rampant that cruel just has to do something and step in for a couple of reasons right he doesn't want to be intruded on he doesn't want the crippled god to break free but at the same time the crippled god is growing in power and so he's got to do something to thwart that. Yeah, I don't think, because he's obviously at risk. Right. So, I mean, yeah, you got to mitigate that. So, and it also goes back to, again, you know, one of the conversations we had in the previous section where, you know, the crippled God is using multiple facets, right? Like not only the Panian seer, but these, you know, seafaring murderers that came to Kalos and just decimated everybody here, right? I think that these are an enemy that the crippled God has basically forced into enslavement to do his bidding. Yeah. I've been wondering who that is, who they are. Right. So, yeah, my last thing was, I thought the chapter ended on some very nice humor here where lady envy is like, Oh, if I kiss the mask, does the lips count as one or two, you know, would that make <laughs> him the fifth or the fourth or whatever? And, I just thought that was some some good humor. Just lightening the mood a little bit. All right. A swirl of sorcery rose in the hills ahead of them. Farakalian asked Ikovian if their allies had already sprung the trap. The shield anvil wasn't sure, but said they would likely find out when they decided to reappear. Farakalian said it was definitely a fight ahead of them, and an ugly one at that, based on the magic unleashed. Ikovian said he wasn't going to argue that fact. He told the riders to reform into an inverted crescent with hands-on weapons at a slow trot. The wings of troops, though decimated, fell into line. Ikovian judged they were close to the to the traitor to the traitor road, and if the caravan was attacked by the Kachain Shamal, the outcome was all but certain. As they approached the rise of the hill, the Talanimus appeared, a dozen of them with their backs faced to Ikovian. He thought maybe the others were still in battle. Among them he saw Prancol. As he made his way to the top, the sounds of sorcery and battle faded away. At the road below, two carriages made up the caravan, with one being much larger than the other, both destroyed and ripped apart. To the right, on a small hill, lay three unmoving figures. Eight more bodies were around the wagons, and only two were conscious. Black chain-armored men rose to their feet. Wandering around the five dead Kachain Shamal were hundreds of huge wolves with pitted eyes that matched the Talanimus. He asked Prankol if these animals were his. Pran shrugged, saying that Talani often accompany them. 
but are not bound to them beyond the ritual itself. But it had been nearly 3,000 years since they had last seen the Talani. Itkovian asked if he heard pleasure in his voice. Prankol said yes, and sorrow as well. Itkovian didn't understand the sorrow. It looked to him that they suffered no losses. Four or five hundred to five? It was a swift destruction. Prankol said they were good at taking down larger animals, but his sorrow is de derived from the fact that at the first gathering, the few I left that were left were included in the ritual. All that made the flesh and bloody eye honorable and proud creatures was taken away. Now they are only husks of what they once were, plagued by dead memories. Hitkovian said even if they are undead, they still have a majesty about them, just as he does. Prankol said the Talan I have a majesty about them. The Talan I must have none. Itkovian said they differ in opinion and to check the dead. He headed down to the two chain armored men. Their armor was in tatters and they both bled all over. They made Itkovian uneasy, but he pushed that thought down. The man with the beard welcomed Itkovian and he had a strange accent to his ears. The man said extraordinary events had just taken place. Itkovian said he was surprised that they were still standing after dealing with the Kel hunters. The man said they were resilient, but their companions were lacking in resources. Farakalian said of the three bargast on the hill, one was dead, and the other two would survive with proper attention. Of the rest, there was only one casualty so far, but there were various injuries to deal with, and two may not survive. Though none of the survivors were conscious, it was as though they were all in a deep sleep. Itkovian asked about a tall, lean, and somewhat old man, and a shorter, much more elderly man. Farakalian said the former hovers at the gates. Itkovian said it would be best not to lose him, if at all possible, and that the gray swords were skilled in healing. They would do the best they could. No more than that could be asked. If needed, Farakalian should draw on his Destrian's power. The bearded man introduced himself as Bauchelain and his companion Corbel Broach. He asked Itkovian if the four-footed creatures and the others were his servants. Itkovian said they were allies. The Talanimus and Talani. Corbel asked Bauchelain if he could talk to them as they were born from the greatest necromantic ritual that ever existed. Itkovian told him to wait as they both bore wounds that needed healing. Bauchelain said there was no need. They would heal quickly. He should focus attention on their companions while he repaired the carriages. Itkovian said there were there was no time for repairs. They needed to get to Capistan immediately. Bauchelain said it would not take long. Itkovian turned around at a shout and saw Corbel, Corbel Broach flying backward through the air, backhanded by Pran Cole. Bauchelain said he lacked manners, likely due to an isolated childhood. He asked if the Talanimus held grudges. Kovian thought to himself that Bauchelain could ask the next Jag Hut they came across. Instead, he told him he had no idea. Interesting section, sir. Yeah, I, I really didn't have any comments on it. I mean, it's pretty straightforward. You know, they come across this battle or the, the after aftermath of a battle that we kind of already read about previously. Mm -hmm. And now it's just a matter of sort out the living and the dead. And there's surprisingly few casualties. But those that are wounded are almost like, I guess, kind of, I imagined in a coma, more or less. And I guess not like a coma in our sense, but yeah, a deep sleep. I don't know. Yeah. I'm not sure what he's trying to insinuate with the deep sleep there, but I think it's just coma or unconsciousness is really what he's trying to get at there. I don't. I feel like Bouchelaine or Corbel are probably behind it. Behind what? 
this deep sleep that everybody's in. Think so? You think they did it to like save them? I don't know. I just I think they're behind it somehow. Hmm. I don't know. Just a gut feeling, I guess. I don't know why they would do that. I feel like they would have more things for to play with if they just let them die. Maybe they want to keep them unconscious so that they can turn them into cadavers before they die. Maybe. It's always possible. That's about the only thing I could think of. I mean, because I, I'm sure they didn't expect anybody to come up on them, right? Right. That's, that's yeah, I'm sure that they were not expecting that. I like the timing of all this. I was not expecting. I was not expecting this at all. Uh, I didn't think that we were going to get an answer to what happened in the end of Chapter 6 until much later. So I was, like, really surprised when I, like, read this section. I'm like, oh, my God. Like, that's cool. <laughs> like, the sorcery that they came across at the very beginning of the chapter is basically the, you know, end of chapter at, at the end of chapter six. So it was, it was cool. I thought it was a nice tie in. Right. The, the yeah, one, I don't know if there's really anything you wanted to talk about here. Sorry. I didn't mean to no, no, you're fine. You the one, the one thing that I wanted to talk about is Ikovian asked about a tall, lean and somewhat old man and a shorter, much more elderly man. And then, you know, Farah Kalian, I can't say his name, asked that the former hovers at the gates. And then Itkovian said that it would be best to not lose him, if at all possible. They're saying former, which I'm assuming means the shorter, much more elderly man. And my guess uh, is that's Karuli. I think former would be the first, because it, like it's former and latter, right? Well, I guess you're supposed you're right. Yeah, yeah. I, I, okay, I'm just stupid. I think you're right, yes. Okay. So they are talking about Karuli, which again, just plays into all of the suspicions that I've had this entire time about his character and just the mystery that surrounds him is all is all I think is interesting. Who is the other guy? I can't remember the other guy's name right now. The one who like wants to die, like his, oh, I feel like it starts with a B. Buke. I was thinking, I kept thinking Baruch, but it's just Buke. Oh, yeah. I thought this was, I thought they were talking about Gruntle. I could be wrong because Buke, from what I remember, is older, right? So, right. And I guess I didn't right. really feel like Gruntle was terribly old, but gotcha. Fair enough. But yeah, that, that was so, a yeah. comment, really. You know, like you said, I would agree. It's just the very straightforward section. I, I feel like it's almost kind of like a, a wind down from a lot of the things that we've been seeing. I feel like this isn't as much of a, I wouldn't say info dump, but there was a lot of info in a lot of these previous sections. And this one doesn't have a ton of info. It's just kind of like perpetuating the story forward or like right. a series of events. I did right. think uh, it Covian thinking to himself that Boshelin should ask the next J-Cut they came across about his question. snarky. Yeah. <laughs> it seems to be like a well-known thing. Yeah. But obviously these guys aren't even from, you know, this area remotely, so they wouldn't know. Right. But they're familiar with the, the Talan because Corporal is as giddy as a schoolgirl about talking to one. So. Like, I think they've heard of them. That's probably about it. Right. But yeah, I'm ready to move on if you are. Yeah, go ahead. All right. From the ruins of the smaller carriage, three carriage carriers were being pulled by the undead eye. The caravan's collection of horses went under the care of Farakalian and the recruit. Itkovian watched as Corporal led the oxen back to their rebuilt carriage. He found his gaze avoiding the rebuilt carriage. As Boshalane 
had decided to use the various bones of the Kell hunters to reconstruct it. He shuddered at his thoughts about the carriage's owners. Pray and Cole approached and said that their preparations were done. It Covian nodded and asked Pran and asked Pran what he made of those sorcerers. Pran replied and said that the unmanned one is insane and the other is a greater threat. They are unwelcome company. It Covian's eyes narrowed on Corbral and understood that unmanned meant that Corbral was a eunuch. He asked if they were necromancers. Pran said that they were, and that Corbral dances with chaos on the edge of Hood's realm. The other has more uncommon interests, a summoner of formidable power. Shield Anvil said that they cannot abandon them. Pran said that if he said so, then so be it. Pran hesitated and said that the injured mortals were dreaming. The Bonecaster said that he looked forward to their awakening, especially the priest. He comments on how well the soldiers did on healing, or rather the Grey Swords. Shield Anvil explains that his Destriant is hide to null, and that they were able to draw on his powers during times of need. He gathered his reins and straightened in his saddle. He tells Pran that they will ride through the night, and at dawn should be at the gates of Capistan. Pran asks about the presence of the Talani Mass and the Talan Eye. Shield Anvil said that if they could be hidden, that would be great, except those pulling the wounded. Pran asked if he had a reason for this. Shield Anvil nodded. So, again, just kind of perpetuating the story a little bit forward. I think it's cool that we get a little bit more history on Boshelaine and Corbral here. And I don't know what Corbral being a eunuch has anything to do with it, but I think it's just a, a, a small, cool detail. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think eunuchs kind of have a reputation in fantasy as being like untrustworthy, but. Right. Yeah, definitely something about them. And it's not that we didn't share the characters on ease for these characters or for Boshelaine and Corbel. I mean, I don't know what I would do in that situation either, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Just kind of got to ride it out, I guess. Go with the flow for now. Um, the only other thing that I had was Pran looks forward to Karuli, Karuli's awakening. And I just, I wonder if this has anything to do with Karuli's elder god. Maybe it is a perhaps a way of speaking with Karul again. I know that they met in Gardens of the Moon, so... Yeah. Who met in Gardens of the Moon? Cruel and Pran. They were in Crump's oh. dream as they were essentially birthing Silver Fox. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. yeah, it could be. Well, yeah. I, you know, a nice little section in between things. Uh, the, the other thing that I thought was cool about the section was just the visual you get on how Boshelaine reconstructed his carriage. And now it's just like a bone carriage from, <laughs> you know, undead <laughs> creatures, right? Like, that was cool. Yeah, it probably looks like metal as fuck, you know, like just have a guy up there playing guitar like the the fucking you need the guy from uh Mad Max. Mad Max, yeah. Just up there just riffing it up. I finally watched that movie not too long ago and it was pretty good. It wasn't it wasn't a uh, new one? Yeah, Furry Road. Yeah. They're making a like a series on that now, I think, or another movie, I don't remember. Hmm. I'd watch it. It was interesting. But yeah, dude. Yeah, it was pretty good. From I'm ready if you're ready. Already is my middle name. The Destriant looked at Prince Jalarkin with sadness. Actually, given the look of exhaustion on him, it was empathy. Carnatus's head pounded and his worn felt empty as if it were coated in ash. 
If his hands were on the table, they would have visibly been shaking. The mortal sword paced behind him. Ikovian and his soldiers rode on the plain to the west. Something had happened, and with every step the destriant felt concern. Prince Jalarkin had his eyes shut and rubbed his head. Though he was only 22 years old, he could have passed for more than 40. He told the mortal sword that the mass council would not change their mind and insist that their Gidrath company occupy the outlying fortifications. The prince knew. He also knew that they would become isolated, killed, and raped down to the man. The priests think they are master strategists in warfare, and since this is a religious war, their own elite warriors must make the first blow. Brucalian said they no doubt would, and would likely do little else. The prince thought maybe they could organize a retreat. Brucalian said that would only cost more lives and almost certainly would fail. He will not have his soldiers take part in a suicide run. They are contracted to hold the city, and the best way to do that is to maintain the walls. The outlying buildings would serve the enemy better than they would serve the cabins as either headquarters or defensible rally points. The Gidrath would be handing over the fortifications in the killing ground, and once they have siege weapons there, well, you can kiss your ass goodbye. Constant shelling. The prince and the mass council didn't expect the fortifications to fall, so everything he fears is irrelevant to them. He told the mortal sword that he needs leverage and to find it quickly, and he left the room. Uh, after the prince had left, Brucalian asked Carnatus if they were still drawing on his power. He shook his head and said it had been some time now. However, they had drained him, and it would take him some time to recover. The mortal sword said it was safe to assume the Panians had sent forces. It was just a question of how many. Carnatus said it was enough to decimate two wings of soldiers. Brucalian said Ikovian should have avoided the fight. Carnatus told him that was an unfair statement, as Ikovian understands caution, and if it were possible to avoid the fight, he would have. Frustrated, Brucalian said he knew. The two turned as they heard horse hooves, and Ikovian's outrider Sidlis entered the room. He said he brings news from the shield anvil. Brucalian spoke, saying she had seen battle. I think I messed up some pronouns there. Um not asking if it were a question. She said they had met demonic servants on the plane. Their tactics were sound, and the damage delivered should have been more than enough. However, it was discovered too late that the creature's was an undead animated corpse. It was nearly impervious to their damage. However, they succeeded in, drawing it, in destroying it at a great cost. Carnata said this battle must have taken place some time ago, otherwise she would not be here. However, the demands of his power for healing had only just ended. Sidless said the survivors did not require healing, and if she could finish her story, it might clarify his questions. Once they killed the first one, the soldiers regrouped, only to find another four of the creatures had entered the fracas. Carnatus wondered how any of them survived. At that moment, some unexpected allies had arrived, and the demons were quickly destroyed. This new alliance needs some formalization, but at the time, a common enemy is what held it together. So far, she knows it still holds, and they are hunting for more of the demons. Brucalian said given how exhausted Carnatus was, they must have found more. She nodded and said that there were emissaries from potential allies that had traveled with her as well. At that moment, three Talan Imus emerged from the ground. She said they were called Kron Talan Imus and that Ikovian estimated their number to be about 14,000. Carnata said this was a most disturbing turn of events. Sidlis introduced the three bone casters or shaman as Beck Aken with the white fur of a snow bear, the white 
Wolfer is Bendal Home, and the Plains Bear is Okral Loam. And the animal fur or skin represents their soul taken form. Bendal Home stepped forward to and gave greetings from Kron and said the clans escorting at Govian had dealt with the Kachain Shamal that attacked the caravan. They were all on their way back to the city and should be here by morning. Carnatus couldn't believe what he was hearing. Brocalian thanked her and said she may go. Facing Bendal home, he asked if the Imus were looking for an alliance against the Panians and these Kachain Shamal. Bendal said such a fight wasn't their primary focus. They had come here to answer a calling. But the discovery of the Kachain Shamal was an unexpected, unacceptable and unaccepted. Kron had decided that they would involve themselves in the conflict for now, as she who summoned the second gathering approaches. Then it would be for her to decide. At that time, when the gathering is completed, they may be less valuable. Brucalian asked Carnatus if he had questions for Bendal home. He had so many he didn't know where to start, so he asked the first question in his mind. What was this gathering about? Bendal said that was a matter for the Tlanimus. Having his question shot down, he moved on, asking if the Panianseer really was a mortal human. He has seen him and detected no scent of illusion to his flesh or bone. As far as he could see, he was an old man and nothing else. Beck asked who stood in his shadow. Carnatus said no one as far as he could tell. Then he asked Brucalian if they dared tell the prince this news or the mass council. He said they needed more information before making a decision. They were to wait the return of Itkovian. Plus, they had other things to talk about this night. Carnatus had forgotten about Quick Ben. Bendelholm spoke, saying that when Itkovian returned with the caravans wounded, it would also include six Talan I. Brucalian said he was not familiar with the name. Bendel explained that they were wolves from an age long past, undead as they were. Carnatus smiled, saying the prince had asked for leverage, hadn't he? Bendel Holmes said if they had further need of him, they need only to call. They fell into a cloud of dust to the ground. Brocalian told Carnatus to walk with him. They had a lot to talk about and not enough time. Carnatus said it sounded like they wouldn't sleep tonight. Well, what did you think of that? Lots of information. I think the Mass Council are fucking idiots. Uh, yeah. <laughs> they just, yeah. You're just gonna... You're going to lose guys and increase uh, the tennis galleries numbers is all you're going to do. Well, right. And and give the Panian Domen a place to like lay siege, right? What's stopping him from taking these outlying fortifications and using them as a base, right? Nothing. Well, I, th- I think that either way they were going to get these buildings, right? Because they're either going to take them because they're undefended or they're going to kill guys and take them anyways is, is how I thought of it. Oh, um, yeah. I guess that's fair. I guess I don't know why that they, the, the captains just don't destroy them so that they can't take them. But I mean, that's a thought. I don't know. Yeah. I think, I think the mass council is in severe denial about this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I mean, I guess that's just kind of religion for you, right? They all think they're all right and can't be touched. And then they generally get a reality check somewhere along the way. Yeah. Fair enough. But yeah, I don't know. Uh, it was a pretty straightforward section. I think the most yeah. part is the, the to land at the end. Yeah. It, I mean, well, yeah, the leverage thing, I guess a few of my thoughts from the top, I guess I don't really remember any descriptions of Warren's having a sensor touch of 
feel to them, but maybe they have, and I'm just not remembering them. Maybe there was something in Dead House Gates. Um, maybe. I mean, the only one that comes to mind is the Imperial Warren with the whole ashy, yeah. you know, feel. But outside of that, I can't think of any other ones that have like giving me this huge like sensory to them. Yeah. You know, the first time I read this, I had a really hard time keeping track of who was who. And and now after reading it, you know, it makes more sense. Mortal Swords, Brucalian, Destriant, Carnatus, Shield Anvil, Ecovian. Um, and But yeah, it was just kind of one of those things I needed to get familiar with it. But I had a hard, harder time with that the first time through. I'm like, who the fuck is talking to who? Right. Um, yeah. But, yeah. I think I got a sense after the first section on my like second through. Yeah, now it's not really a big deal. So, uh, kind of getting back to your thoughts on these outlying buildings, but you know, I probably the better idea would be to destroy them. But at the same time, you know, I think they probably should be defending them somehow. I just don't know how you do that when you're outnumbered so terribly, just so that your walls aren't getting shelled by artillery. So I'm like, God damn, like, what if Coltane was here? He'd have this figured out in no time. <laughs> he's not here. He is not here. No, uh, no, he's not. Yeah, I just, I mean, I mean, maybe, maybe I need to take back my comment. Um, you know, maybe the Mass Council is right, but I feel like, as you pointed out, no matter what you do, damned if you do, damned if you don't. I mean, but how many of the army would you take out if you had people? in the outlying fortifications, you know? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, how spread out are they? I mean, are they going to be surrounded in seconds? And, you know, I I don't know. Right. Like, I think it's just a very bad situation. Yeah. But, I mean, there's long-range weaponry, right? Like, you can get arrows up there. And, I mean, if you bar the doors, right, you've got two options to get in, and that's either climb or break down the door. If you code yeah. it, go 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 get a Saltoan to that fucking pass thing and grab a bunch of grease from the walls and coat it all up along those fortifications, then you probably might stand a chance out there. Yeah, but you're putting, I mean, you're, you're whoever you stick up there, putting a death wish on them. So you got to find somebody suicidal because it's, it's not like you can have 60,000 arrows in each tower. Right. Yeah. I don't know. It's, Semantics. It's just a bad deal, man. Yeah. Good. My next thought here, Brucalian asked Carnatus if they were still drawing on his power, and I was kind of wondering who they were, but that must be survivors, the soldiers, the survivors of the attack with the uh, Kachain Shamal, I suppose. Right, yeah, the great sense, right? Yeah. Yeah, I, I kind of didn't have anything here for a while till the end of the section, but, you know, and they're asking about the Panian Seer, and he's been seen, and, you know, it says he just looks like an old man and nothing else. And I don't know why, but I just, like, there's a part of me that feels like he's describing Kalor. Hmm. I don't know. You think Kalor is the uh, Panion Seer working from the inside? It wouldn't surprise me if somehow he were involved. And maybe it's not as direct as that, but I don't know. But I feel like in the prologue, didn't people bring down the crippled god to take out Kalor? And why would, I guess, maybe the crippled god recruited him? Because why not? But I don't know. Great. That's an interesting theory. I don't know. Kalor just, I think he's a bastard. So he definitely is. You might be onto something there. We'll see. But that was, yeah, that was all I had. Right. I mean, the only thing that I could talk about uh, is just the interaction with the Talan and Mouse here and 
they're just like, yep, no, we might be around to help, but probably not. So don't count on us. Don't count on us, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I suppose their their priorities will change, you know, that type of thing. Or who knows what's going to happen at this gathering? Are they going to go through some sort of change again? I don't know. Right. But, yeah, I'm outside of that, I don't really have any other any other thoughts. Um, this next section was also one of my favorites. So I think uh, if I remember right, it was one of mine also. But yeah, I guess without further ado, two hours before dawn, Brucalian stood alone and exhausted in his private chamber. The shield anvil and his troops would arrive soon, and like a good commander, he would await them. The sorceress meeting with Quick Ben and Brood had proved strained. It was clear to both the Mortal Sword and Carnatus that they were holding something back. There were uncertainties of Brood in his army that left both of them feeling uncomfortable, as the relief of Capustan seemed to not be the Malazan's goal. Regardless, he could think of ways in which to use this approaching army to his advantage. He thought to himself that the Septarch could be hurt badly enough to make him lose his nerve with the arrival of Brood's army. Or, if the defense crumbled, then Brood could provide an avenue for the Greyswords to retreat from the city. He wondered to himself what would define the end of the contract. He sensed the air tear behind him. A breath of lifeless wind followed, flowed around him. The mortal sword slowly turned. A tall, gauntly armored figure was visible within the warren. Gray-smeared portal. A jag hut stood within the portal. In the language of Elin, he tells the mortal sword that he brings greetings from Hood. The mortal sword grunted, but then said nothing. After a moment, the Jaghut questions why Brucalian seems so unnerved by his presence. The mortal sword responded that he is Fenner's mortal sword. The Jaghut said that he knows, and he, on the other hand, was Hood's herald, once known as Gathal. A tale that lies behind the present servitude is more worthy than enough for an epic poem. Gathal asks if the mortal sword was not curious. Brucalian said no. Gathal looked disappointed and said that the mortal sword will hear the words of his lord. Gathal begins by saying that one could deny Hood's hunger and even his anticipation for the siege to come. Certain complexities of the greater scheme lay his lord to venture an invitation to Fender, Fenner's mortal soldiers. Brucalian says that the herald of Hood should ask Fenner himself. Gathal says that it is no longer possible as Fenner's attention is elsewhere. He says that it was a fact that Fenner has been drawn, with great reluctance, to the very edge of this realm. The Jaghut's eyes narrowed and explained that Fenner is in great peril, and the loss of his powers is intimate. Hood has decided that the time has come for compassionate gestures, expressions of a true brotherhood that exists between Fenner and Hood. The mortal sword asked what it was that Hood proposed. The Herald of Death said that Capustan was doomed. Yet the mortal sword's army does not need to join the others at Hood's gates. The Panion Domen is more than a single minor element in a far vaster war. A war in which all gods shall partake, allied one and all, against an enemy who seeks nothing less than the annihilation of all rivals. Thus, Hood offers you his warren, a way for the mortal sword and his men to escape. But Brucalian must choose quickly, as Hood's warn will not survive the arrival of the Panion. Brucalian simply said that what Hood offered demands the breaking of their contract. The Herald laughed and said that he had told Hood that humans were pathetic. 
Cathal explains that what Hood offers is more than some ink on a page. Rukalian cut in and said that in accepting Hood's warren, the face of their patron changes. Fenner, being unreachable, has made him a liability. So Hood acts quickly to strip the boar of Summer's servants, to serve Hood and Hood alone. Gethal sneered and called him a fool. Fenner would be the first to fall to the crippled god. The boar shall fall, and none can save him. The patronage of Hood is not so casually offered. You should be honored. The mortal sword scoffed and suddenly drew his broadsword, and it hissed in a blur, the blade cleaving upward to strike the herald across the face. Bones snapped and blood sprayed. Gathal reared back a step, hands to his face. Gathal rasped through cut lips, but he did not appreciate his tone, and it fell to him to answer, not on Hood's behalf, but his own. A long sword appeared in each of the Jaghut's hand, blades shimmering like liquid gold. He took a step forward and then stopped, swords lifting in a defensive position. A soft voice was heard behind the mortal sword, and it said, We greet you, Jaghut. The mortal sword turned to see three Talani Mas, looking as if they were moments away from veering into their soul-taken forms. Gathal told the Talan that this was not their fight. Beck Okan said that with this mortal was not. However, Gathal was Jaghut. Gathal said that he was Hood's herald, and they dare challenge a servant of the Lord of Death. Okan asked why they would hesitate, and asked if his lord would dare challenge the Amas. Gathal grunted as something dragged him bodily back the warren snapping shut, swallowing him. Rokalian turned to the three mass bonecasters and said that their arrival has left him disappointed. The bonecasters said that they understood, but their hunt for this jaghut demanded their interruption. The mortal sword and the bonecasters continue to talk for a few moments before Rokalian tells them that he wishes to be alone. Ichi Mas bowed and then disappeared. The mortal sword walked back to the hearth and then unsheathed his blade he stirred the blade into the coals, and the Jaghut blood sizzled and dissipated. He stared down at the hearth for a long time, and despite the unveiled power of the sanctified sword, the mortal sword saw nothing before him. That was a, a lengthy one for quite a short chapter, or short section. I think that was my favorite section. Yeah, it was and, awesome. And I think Brookhalian might become a favorite character of mine he definitely seems like a badass just like unfazed by everything that's going on yeah like gethal's just like oh they should be composing poems about me how right. do you not know who i am like brookhaley's like i don't give a fuck like right. you're nobody i don't give a fuck right exactly he does not he gives zero zero fucks obviously he's reflecting on you know the quick ben and brood being strained and, you know, it had left him and Carnatus feeling uncomfortable as they could kind of tell that the relief of Capistan was not Malazan's goal. You think Brucalian and Carnatus here are speculating or do you think they're right? If they are, what do you think are the Malazan's intentions or did they already say what their intentions were? I think they're speculating because Quick Ben, I mean, he didn't really give them a ton of information. I don't think he told them like what they're, he only said like they couldn't match their numbers, but they had surprises, right? Mm -hmm. I think it's, it's probably a healthy skepticism at what they're feeling. Right. And probably they're feeling a little like, oh, this is too convenient. Yeah. Like, I think they, they probably feel like, okay, we got to do this on our own. Somebody's going to come help us. Okay. That's great. But can we really count on them to make a, a difference 
probably not. So we're just, you know, we're going to have to figure it out on our own. Yeah. So, and then there's also this, uh, you know, thought that he has about what would define the end of his contract with Prince Jalarkin, right? And he gives off a couple of examples. Do you remember what those were? Not offhand, no. Something to do about, like, if the Panion breached the wall or if it was the death of Prince Jalarkin, like, when do they make their exit? Like, when exactly is the end of the contract? So what do you think it would be? I don't think it would be if the city's breached. I mean, then I, you know, because what are you going to do? You're still within the city. Is there, there's probably not a back door you're just going to leave out of. And I don't think it's going to do any good to surrender because you're still going to get killed. Or become tennis. So I, right. So I think uh, the end of the contract is probably just death. Maybe they don't see it that way, but I, I mean, from my standpoint, I don't know. I would get the fuck out as soon as the walls were breached. But where are you going to go? Yeah, I would use the Malzans, like he's saying, to their advantage. But how? How? I mean, I don't think I don't think they're going to have so many guys at the wall. Like you're not going to be able to fight your way out. Maybe. I mean, I don't know. I guess it all just depends on the movement of my allies, right? I'd get the fuck out. Well, I'm I'm not disagreeing. I'm like I wouldn't want to be there like from the start. <laughs> but yeah, because I don't think it's going to be a siege where they're just going to try to starve you out and wait. No, like they're coming. In. They're they're coming knocking. Yeah, interesting. All right, well, fair enough. So Hood's Herald, uh, uh, we know is revealed as Gethel, and we got mention of Hood's Herald when Spindle Picker and them were playing with the deck of dragons, while like Crone was underneath the table in uh, chapter five or whatever that was. So it's kind of nice that that's being revealed. I guess I don't remember that, but uh, I'm kind of remembering it now that you mentioned it, but I didn't at the time when I read it. Yeah. Um, when Brookhalian is, you know, just kind of being unfazed by Gathal's appearance here, uh, it just makes me think that Gathal is either not as intimidating as he should be, or Brookhalian is just that big of a badass. I, th- I think Brookhalian is just a badass because, I don't know, I mean, if you're Hood's Herald, like, you're probably a pretty big badass. I would agree. I think, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I think Brucalian is just like, you know, you're not the bully around here. I'm not intimidated by you. Like, what do you want? Let's spit it out. <laughs> right. Yeah. Just fucking get it over with. I got too much shit to do. Yeah. I'm a busy guy here. Right. So it was just, it, it was cool to see that just defiance. One of the other things that I thought was really cool and very well worded was Gathal says that no one could deny Hood's hunger. And even his anticipation for the siege to come, it's just, whoa, like just a a rush of like, oh, yeah, I could understand. I can like feel how much that anticipation would be welcomed. You know, if like I were the god of death, like knowing the siege was coming, I'm like, yeah, let's get going. Give me some souls. (laughs) Yeah. And then when Gethal is telling Brucalian that he must choose quickly as Hood's Warn will not survive the arrival of the Panion, I think that this is maybe referring to what Cruel said about Lady Envy's Warren and that she can draw upon it, but it would be poisoned. So I think that it's a similar thing. So maybe yeah, I agree. God has made progress with Burn at this point and is maybe starting to breach into other Warrens possible yeah so i but i thought it was a a similar issue as well right but then we get more fenner here fenner being unreachable has made him a liability 
So Hood acts quickly to strip the boar of Summer's servants to serve Hood and Hood alone. Is it possible that Hood is merely trying to be preventative here? Like, if the crippled god takes Fenner, and presumably his warren, and his mortal servants, then the crippled god would have servants to manipulate, right? So is Hood simply trying to take away that ability? Should Fenner fall? It's an interesting thought, especially, I mean, I don't know, they think Fenner's going to fall pretty quick, so I don't know. You think just a kind of a tangent off your thought here with Fenner being unreachable, you think he's still just running around seven cities somewhere? I Well, this, this comes to my next point, actually. So like when he's talking about Fenner would be the first to fall to the crippled god, I think that the reason why Fenner in Deadhouse Gates, when Fellows and, and Bowden were trying to call Fenner through like Hebrick's tattoo, I think Fenner saw this as a way to escape the crippled god and hide, like we were kind of speculating in Deadhouse Gates. I think that's the reason why he's unreachable, is that he's hiding inside gotcha. of Warwick, right? And now thinking about it, it makes so much sense. I mean, he's an ex-priest. No one would expect Fenner to be there. True. I guess I kind of, yeah, I, for some reason in my mind, I I felt like he was just off running around. I didn't remember or pick up that he was, he might be within Hebrick. Yeah. didn't remember that part from Deadhouse Gates. It's been a little bit. I mean, I don't think it was ever really concluded, but I think that it's it's heavily insinuated that that's where he is. But also, just a thought occurred to me now. I mean, it sounds like Trake or Treach... And the boar of summer, they're all war ascendants, like, you know, gods of war, so to speak, right? So yeah, if Fenner is unreachable, then you would recruit Trake, right? But also, Maybe. the crippled god, you take out gods of war, then you're essentially trying to get the leg up, right? You're taking out the god that would call people to war. Yeah, yeah, because then who's you can have the god of flowers and and daisies, yeah, animals, yeah, <laughs> opposed to like, well, that'll be easy, yeah, the Snow White equivalent of a god, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I just think it's really interesting. The more we get into it, the more things are explained or maybe insinuated, but at the same time, there's still that like mystery surrounding it. One of the other things that I thought was interesting, and for whatever reason, it just never like became headcanon to me, but when they're saying that the Talan looked like they were moments away from veering into their soul-taken forms, I don't know why I didn't think that this could happen. I guess I just reserved it for the human side, you know? Oh, I got you. So, like, Tok, for example, like, Tok's not soul-taken, right? Or is he? I don't right. think he is. Well, we don't know that yet. But yeah, sure. It could be. Yeah. It's not, if he is, it's not been revealed. Okay. So you didn't think like the, I guess, skeletal forms could change into animals. Correct. Do you think uh, they would be skeletal animals or do you think they would be like fleshy? I think they would be skeletal. I'm not sure. I think maybe I would maybe lean that way too, but I don't know. Yeah. Who knows? It just, for whatever reason, it wasn't something in my head canon until I read that. And I'm like, oh, that's a possibility. Gotcha. I didn't even think about it till you said it. And I know I've said that a lot this episode, <laughs> this chapter. And then it was funny how Okan, the Amass, said that, you know, why would they hesitate, right? Because, like, they're on a mission. They're still on a mission to kill J-Huts, right? Like that. Yeah, they haven't given that up. Yeah. But then he asked if his lord would dare challenge the Amass. And I'm like, if I was Hood, I would always be after the Amass 
as they have escaped death, essentially, they would be my like number one like people to get. Hmm. Okay, that could be dangerous to mess with them. Right. Yeah, exactly. I think. My last thought on this very riveting section is at the end there, he's like stroking his broadsword into the hearth. And despite the unveiled power of his sanctified sword, like does the sword give him visions or tell him things? Like what exactly is this saying? Is this just a sword that Fenner himself sanctified? Uh, I kind of wondered too, but I don't know. I guess maybe I, I felt maybe this was just a little bit, maybe more, I can't think of the word I want, just straightforward. Maybe yeah. he's just kind of staring off, you know, he's cleaning the sword and just kind of staring off into, you know, nothingness. Right. I don't Fair know. Enough. All right. I mean, that explains it. Let's do this wrapper up. All right. It was a struggle from the darkness, pain from behind his eyes. He groaned and it startled him enough to wake him. He was propped up. He had been able to feel movement, but that had stopped. Opening his eyes, he found only shadows. A stone wall not far from him to his left. To his right was sunlight glinting off blurred images of soldiers, horses, and impossibly large wolves. A shadow cast over him with the crunch of boots. Gruntle looked up. It was stony, blood dried all over her face. She put a hand on his chest and said they had reached Capistan. She told him Harlow was dead and they left him buried under some rocks. And a talk. She had given him his manhood. The poor innocent boy was gone too. Another young woman appeared and said they were safe now. He had been force healed and they grieved for his losses. At least the gray swords do. But he could rest assured that they were avenged against the demons. Gruntle wasn't listening. He thought to himself that he saw Harlow throw himself right into the path between him and the creature. Damn him. He saw. Now he was a corpse under rocks, a face in the darkness, smeared in the dust, and would never smile again. A new voice called out to the captain. Gruntle told Karuli it had been done. He was delivered to the city. He damned Karuli to Hood and told him to beat it. Karuli bowed his head and removed himself from Gruntle's anger and was gone. Yay, we did it. I have a feeling <laughs> uh, many more episodes are going to take place in two parts. <laughs> yeah, it could. Um, I think now that we know we can prepare for that, it's not as big of a deal. But Right. Yeah. It'll be nice to continue on after a month of reading the same chapter. So. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. Um, I didn't have a lot to this, but it's nice to know that Gruntle's alive. Sucks that Harlow's dead. Right, because I like him more than Buke. Yeah. You know, just the line where he says, now he's a corpse under rocks, a face in the darkness, smeared in the dust, and would never smile again. Like, it's a, a shitty line, but it's beautifully written, you know? Like, it sucks to put it in perspective like that. Like, he's never going to smile again. Right. But, you know, I mean, sometimes I wonder in this universe if really anybody really stays dead. So, I mean, I wouldn't half expect Harlow to come back in some way, shape, or form. Who knows, right? Yeah. I I mean, yeah, there is. We have seen people come back. I think Harlow's, for all intents and purposes, he's just like the common everyday guy, right? Yeah. I don't think he's probably coming back. Probably. But maybe I'm wrong on that. Probably so. not. I was just surprised that it wasn't Buke. Like, he was the one who had the death wish, but yet he's still alive. 
Still got a role to play, I guess. I feel like if Gruntle and Buke do, I wouldn't say link up, but run across each other again, I think that Gruntle's going to have some very choice, choice words. You know, like, it should be you instead of Harlow. I feel like there's a little bit of resentment that might come about based on what you think Gruntle so? knows about Buke. Yeah, for sure. I would be. I'd be fucking pissed. I don't, yeah, but I don't know if he'd be that, because he knows what Buke went through, so I don't know if he'd be that, like, cold to him. Maybe. But I don't know. Buke was pretty, pretty, like, arrogant to the way that he felt about other people's opinions about him just dying, right? I mean, isn't that the motivation why he joined up with Boshelaine and Corbel? Yeah, yeah, that's true. So, but still, to like hear, like, even if that was your motivation to hear somebody say, like, you know, you should be dead, like, that'd be pretty tough. That, that'd be rough to hear. Cause yeah. even though you may feel that way, I feel like that would hurt to have somebody say that to you. And I, I don't think, uh, Mr. Erickson is above hurting people's feelings in these books, but the time we've spent with Gruntle, I, I, I don't know if he would say something like that. And maybe he totally would. I don't know that I just get that sense yet. Yeah. But I feel like, like Gruntle has more of a reason to be in his feels than Buke does. How so? I mean, like I get where, where Buke is coming from and I could definitely be empathetic with it, but like you take two tragic situations, you give one time and the other one is fresh. That's kind of where I'm coming from. Is that like, this is fresh to Gruntle, you know, whereas like Buke has had time and not that like getting over the death of your family is easy. Like that would be absolutely hard, but at the end of the day, you know, time heals. But I I don't, I I don't know how, if the time matters to Buke, I'm sure it's probably all he thinks about, right? Like that's the, that's the reason he joined up. Like you said, it's probably because he can't think of anything else and. I don't know. I guess it's complicated. We'll see what what happens. Yeah. Do you get any predictions then, as far as like what we'll see in this next chapter? I I, do, I don't really just because it's it's been so long. Uh, I don't know that I could really make any predictions. Um, I kind of hope it's one of those chapters where we get a little bit of perspective from everybody, just because it's it's been a while and I, and I've missed it. So I want to I don't want to have to wait too long to get it into everybody's shoes again I'd, yeah. I'd like to see a little bit of everybody um yeah i don't know that i have anything specific in mind right now it'd be nice i don't know i mean yeah well i mean i guess they're on the march um it feels like all the players that need to be at capistan are there but i don't know that the siege is going to start this quick no i think it's going to ramp up i think that there's going to be like small skirmishes here and there yeah, I, I don't I don't know what to expect. Yeah, I, I don't know. I can't wait to read and, and find out, though. Yeah, for sure. Me as well. But yeah, dude, great episode. Another good episode. Yeah, another long one. I don't think it'll be as long as uh, Chapter 5, but it, it'll it be lengthy again. So um, I will, we've got next week a little change of plans here. I know we were, we were talking about having Nate and Matt for like Chapter 9 or 10, but we've got kind of that a serendipitous moment where we're aligning on the same chapter so we're gonna work on chapter eight with those guys and and have them on and it'll be all four of us this time which will be cool um that'll be a lot of fun and uh that'll be that'll be interesting um going that route but i'm excited to do it uh talking to nate he's he's awfully excited for the chapter so i think you know, you and I talked. I think it's going to be a good chapter just based on how excited he is for it. So we're going to have a uh, be coming next week. 
a treat, I guess. With uh, Podcast of the Fallen, is that what you meant? Well, that, and I mean, like, if he's that excited about this chapter, then we might be in for a treat. Oh, God. I don't know. Like, I just was, what you were saying was not making sense to me. I'm like, what do you mean? Uh, but yes, yes, I I hope you are 100% correct. Um, yeah. I think I think you'll be, you'll be right. Um, and then, yeah, we're, we're midway here through December. So uh, we've got some stuff we'll keep under wraps for now, but we'll be starting 2024 off uh, with some pretty cool stuff, I think. Uh, I think that everybody will be excited for. So as that gets closer, um, I'm sure we'll get details out, but um, working towards some cool stuff with Malazan. Yeah, I feel like by the time this episode airs, it'll be around Christmas time. Or maybe no, it'll probably be yeah. at the end of next week. So yeah, yeah, probably about, uh, yeah, yeah, it will be. <laughs> I will release this episode early for our Patreons uh, a couple days before Christmas. But then, yeah, it should go live on Christmas Day. So Gotcha. Um, I guess just a couple other things. We are so very close to 11,000 plays, and I've been kind of pushing pushing that on Twitter, which is not something I really like to do, but it has, I feel like, been working. At the moment, we are at 10,896 plays or downloads, whatever word you want to use. And I've kind of got this goal for us that I really hope we can hit 11,000 before the end of the year. And I think we'll be able to do it just with the episodes coming out. Uh, and I'll continue to to hawk us uh, like a cheap, cheap wine. <laughs> um but uh, we're dangerously close, and we did just recently pass 500 Twitter followers, so that's also really cool. Um, another pretty big goal, um, and I think we're a little over 150 on YouTube, right? Yep. Somewhere in there, 152. So, so if I could if you have... haven't checked this out on YouTube, yeah, I'm taking your stick. Sorry, go ahead. No, you're fine, yeah. Please do us a huge favor and subscribe to our YouTube channel, even if that's not the platform you listen to. Uh, it, it definitely greatly helps us. Helps us out. And I have another big favor to ask all you listeners, and that is, um, what would you like to see as a potential member of our patron? Like, what is it that we can offer to get some butts in the seats, so to speak? Just because I'm new to this, uh, we're new to this, I'm not too sure what exactly one wants. (laughs) I don't really know what I would want being a patronage of something, but just if you could help us out, that'd be cool. Yeah, I mean, whether you're a patron or not, um, just I guess, yeah, if there's things we're not doing, and I guess uh, maybe we'd have to look at our survey stuff again and see what we got there. I don't honestly remember much. I know uh, we did get some feedback there, but I don't remember a lot of what that is off the top of our head. But uh, I know we've talked about looking at a different platform besides using Zoom, but just, I mean, right now, Zoom is convenient since you, we can use it through your work. Um but if we can find something that's not that Zoom doesn't work well, but if we had, you know, if there's something else that we used, uh, I think that would that would probably definitely help offset that cost. That would be one of the big ones. And then, you know, every year we got to pay Apple to have our podcast on there, which is not a huge expense, but uh, you know, still comes out of pocket. And you know, if we want to upgrade equipment, that type of thing. So there's there's stuff out there. We're doing the best we can, uh, and and we appreciate everybody's help and and love having everybody listen whether you're a patron or not, we appreciate it. 100%. That is one thing I will agree with you on. <laughs> well, it'd be kind of awkward if you didn't agree with that, I suppose. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. That would make me an asshole, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Which you are most certainly not. So Yeah, I am not a Calor. 
So no, Keller's a bastard. I, you could be an asshole too, but he's gotcha. more of a bastard to me than a an asshole. Cool. Well, any uh, any other closing thoughts here, buddy? Not at all. It's uh, it's good to get this off the plate. So I'm uh, excited. I'm gonna probably read a little bit later tonight. Yeah, I don't know if I'll get to do that. I got well, my wife just went to go drop my kid off at school. There's like a band, choir, orchestra concert going on, and I'll have to go pick him up from that. I don't know when that's gonna be done. She's been running around, and I'll I'll have to do a little bit of running around too. So. Probably won't read tonight, but tomorrow I will. I'll get to it, at least through some of it tomorrow when I donate plasma. Sounds good, man. Well, it was great talking and awesome getting through this, and definitely looking forward to reading Chapter 8. Fuck yeah, dude. All right, man. (laughs) Well, we'll talk to you later. All right, later, man. See ya. Bye. Bye.